0: Welcome, everybody, to Cinema Span. I am your host, Louis Hiligas IV. We are covering the films of 2007 this season. Uh, today, we got a great Western, neo neo-West, Western, one remake. Uh, yeah, we got, got a good Western double here. Uh, we're doing The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford and 310 to Yuma. With me today, I've got Quinn Shields from the Fool's Journey podcast. Hey, good to be on. And then I also got Daniel King, author of a new book, An Eye for Killing.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Do you want to talk about your book a little bit, Dan? Sure. Um, So this is my second novel. Um, I, like so many other people, came to town trying to be a screenwriter. Yeah. Uh, That is still an ongoing journey. Uh, But I've recently undertaken the novel writing process. Uh, I released my first book two years ago, Table Scraps, which is a horror novel. Um, Although I absolutely love Westerns. I've loved Westerns my entire life since my dad made me sit down to watch them with him. Yeah, Um, And I've recently branched out and wrote this really gritty, nasty, uh, violent Western um, that I'm very excited about. It's a Mexico set Western in the wake of the Mexican-American War, which is a conflict that nobody talks about, even though we acquired more land from it than the Louisiana Purchase. So it's actually like one of the most important wars in our country's history, but more civilians were killed than soldiers. And so it's, if you're talking about an unjust war, that's like the one to really underline right away. So I think that's why it's not talked about in history as much. Uh, What's interesting. Mm. If you talk to somebody that grew up in Mexico, they know a lot about the war and they also know about the Irish battalion who defected to the Mexican side to fight against the US
0: What because the Irish were so
1: poorly treated in the United States at that time right yo Uh, a lot of that stems from them being Catholics coming to a predominantly Protestant nation this is where you get the first depictions of people uh, as apes in newspaper comics that was actually from the Irish that were here because they were so despised that's crazy Uh, yeah the um, mix,
0: right, not yeah, right. the like, mix. Well, that this one racist term like jumped from a group to
1: another group. Yes, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. totally. Yeah. yeah, but that's where it began. I, I did a lot of research on that before I sat down to write this book. So this does follow what was called St. Patrick's Battalion after the war in Mexico because they couldn't go back to the United States. And so they find their own Irish-led settlement, which is then hijacked and taken over by a native-born Mexican. As kind of recompense for what they did during the war, a guy bets his wife in a game of poker, loses her, and then he has to go north to the New Mexico territory to enlist the help of his brother to get her back. Wow! Well, that's so, so that's sick. a great pitch, man. Thank that's you. so yeah. sick. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's crazy. And you know what? There's people like Canelo Alv- uh, Alvarez who look like Irish. There's people in uh, who look um, yeah Irish in Mexico. Like there's a lot of people who have like. Um, you know, orange yeah. hair and they have, they literally look Irish as fuck and they live in Mexico. So I wonder if there was a lot of crossbreeding going well, it, on. It too. makes sense.
0: Cause like, you know, when the Irish, you know, famines happen, they just came over and drove. So it
1: kind of yeah. ended up yeah. everywhere. Yeah.
2: Know. They probably didn't just settle on the East coast. They right. probably like,
1: were like, all right, we got to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Expansion. Um, Actually, to the people that we work with, were were telling me that there are statues of some of the Irish in St. Patrick's Battalion in Mexico. Wow. In in honor of their service in the war, which is (laughs) fascinating. And then you ask any American, and they don't even... I bet you most Americans wouldn't even be able to tell you that there was a Mexican-American war. I hadn't heard of it, I don't think, until... Oh, really?
2: Well, that's how how we got California. Yes. 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 That's why I, we're I, here I know right we fought now. I
1: them. I just didn't know, the. Uh,
0: I think, the extent to how big it was like for the land acquisition. And oh, yeah. I, yeah. I, thought, I I know Texas was like a border dispute, but I right. thought, yeah. It
1: was just- it, it, yeah, it originally began with Texas, but right. then James Polk in his quest for glory wanted to expand all the way to California. Uh, he was a, a sick, dying president, and his wife basically took over the job uh, toward the end. And Joe Biden. It, it was a la- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was a last ditch attempt to kind of secure his legacy. That's, th- that's what the war was really about. And then the war was also a launching pad for Abraham Lincoln's political career. Uh, he, he mm-hmm. basically raised his profile to a national level by uh, disputing the war. So wow. it's a, it, it's a really interesting time.
0: Yeah. Definitely like an interesting point in
1: American yeah. history. And also right before the civil war as well. And also right before the transcontinental railroad was completed, which connected the East to West. Right. Uh, right. And I have another novel in the works that's half written. It's going to be a really big one. Like, it's halfway done at 120,000 words <laughs> about the Chinese who migrated to California and built the railroad going from west to east across mm-hmm. the Sierra Nevadas, which was extremely dangerous. Absolutely. They're hauling wagons of nitroglycerin up the sides of mountains. Like, and one wrong turn into a ditch and the whole thing would blow up. Right. And like so many of them died. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. <laughs> they were living in these like cliffside villages that you had to repel up to via rope. Like they were so steep, these villages that you couldn't even like walk up to them. Right. Mm. It was insane. It, like it just, people don't understand the sacrifices that are, forefathers made to settle this land. Like we're so spoiled and live such comfortable lives. now it's like,
0: no. And how dangerous every aspect of life, every aspect of life. Yeah. Because they had to sleep in, you know, nature, like, you know, and they had no domesticated areas around then. you know, getting a splinter
1: was dangerous. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, no modern medicine. There was really not much law and order, especially as the further you went West, it became like you govern yourself. Mm. You're a sovereign being. Mm Um, and that's probably why like a lot of Southern states and Western states became more like, you know, state oriented because at the individual level, everybody was sovereign being like it was like I have my ranch and motherfucker fucks with me. I got to kill them. Whereas like if there was a city, there's a lot of laws and, you know, police officers and shit. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, the,
0: the Western genre is always about just America as a changing force. Right. Yeah. You can set it. That's why you can set it you know, really close to the 1900s and, you know, make it all about the fading West, you know, and how capitalism is like come into every aspect of their lives. Or like you said, you know, you can make it about this. There's just a little town out there, you know, and there's really no one governing it besides like the sheriff. sheriff, And you can
2: trick that sheriff to leave town. Right. And then just take over town. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, it's that easy. Like, oh, fucking stagecoach got robbed. You better go out there. Then just everybody runs out, and you're like, "All right, now me and the boys could take over town, get some shots, maybe uh, harass a lady."
0: Yeah, I mean, and uh, I, I, I think so. You know, we we could get into the assassination of Jesse James yeah, let's here. here. Let's do that. Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. um, <laughs> by, by the coward Robert <laughs> Ford. Uh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Fuck Robert Ford, just to Ooh start off, dude.
0: I well, I fuck Robert Ford so hard. I mean, the, this title, you know, is yeah. saying fuck Ro- yeah, Robert. Of course, yeah, Exactly. You know? Yeah. Which I love Um, because like I, yeah, I, er, every, everything from this, you know, is about the cowardice Mm -hmm. um, uh, of of his character, kind of like the flawed virtues he had by looking up to an antihero like Jesse James. Um, Yeah, I mean, essentially the the whole film is just about like making, making a murderer out of, you know, Robert Ford and how he is going to go after Jesse James because Jesse James is more like a mythic mythological figure in this film. Yeah, almost
1: he is. And it's interesting because I I read the novel by Ron Hansen um, after I rewatched the film. Yeah, and Dominic is really smart in that I've seen multiple adaptations of his. The other being Killing Them Softly, which is from the novel Cogan's Trade by George V Higgins, an amazing crime novelist right up there with Elmore Leonard. And he changed almost none of the, he he didn't change any of the dialogue in the book. He just basically lifted it all and put it on screen and added a little bit. And he did the same thing with Jesse James. Yeah. He took all the narration from the book which was really smart, and the, the narration so. The good. narration is great, but what he does is he juxtaposes it with images that completely contradict the narration. Yes, mm. yes. We we hear that Jesse James has a nubbed finger from some sort of accident in his past, although in the film. Brad Pitt his both of his hands are completely fine yeah it says that he has a blinking problem but then it shows Brad Pitt standing in a cornfield not blinking at all yeah staring straight yeah exactly it's this idea of myth and legend growing so large and beyond the individual that it takes on a new life of its own Um, and in doing so it almost renders the individual and who they are moot like the, the legend becomes more important and it doesn't matter who the person is because the public has now decided to consume this other worldly kind of aspect of them. Mm. Uh, the, the movie talks about when Jesse James was killed that in the kinetoscopes where you could see the Taj Mahal in the pyramids in Egypt, he was the only figure that was in there. The only picture of a famous figure that was in there. With the eighth, the eight wonders of the world, yeah. was Jesse James, insane, wow, um, w- which just shows how big he was, yeah, uh, and I think that has to do partly with America's independence and and how we, the rebels, fought against Great Britain and became our own individual entity. Yeah. I think there is a kinship that people see in outlaws and standing against what they see as a corrupt government bureaucratic body and kind of forging their own path in retaining independence by any means necessary. Yeah. Uh, because as the film goes on, increasingly Jesse James's enemy becomes the government. Um, right. Law and order is beginning to become established. It's harder and harder to evade the authorities. Yeah. And it's like this all encompassing entity that's descending upon Jesse to the point where he becomes so neurotic that he can hardly leave his house. Or, and then when he does leave his house, he makes really reckless decisions on purpose, like walking his kid around town with his gun in plain view, which Casey Affleck points out, like, are you trying to get caught? Like, right. what are you doing? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because the film talks about his murders, but it doesn't really get into the bloodthirsty aspects of Jesse James no. and about being an outlaw in the Old West. Not at all.
0: And I, th- I think that's why, like, the framing of of robert ford really you know makes a lot of sense here because it's it, jesse james is almost an unknowable figure right yes. because e- even you know his own stories have been twisted by the people who are now retelling them trying to sell newspapers you know like mm-hmm. it, it's just getting eaten into you know ju- just basically myth in, in general but from from uh yeah from casey affleck's like point of view he gets to learn about the gang, get in, into their heads kind of one by one um, and, and unpack it. But also you see he's taking the myth in his own interpretation, too, because yeah. he goes up to talk to Jesse James and he he just like thinks the conversation is going to go one way. And it, and it doesn't at all, because Jesse James is actually like a real person sitting here just kind of fucking around with his buddies. And, yeah. You yeah. Know, yeah. He's not always
1: like the, the crazy killer, you know. But he he says to him, I stayed open many a nights with my eyes open and my mouth open, just dreaming about your escapades. Yeah. To which Jesse says, they're all lies, you know? Yeah. And it immediately like halts the conversation and it really awakens him to the fact that there is a person standing in front of him. And he's completely discordant with the myth that he's painted in his mind. He's also, he also views Jesse as an idealized version of the man he wants to be and really about masculinity itself that he kind of secretly knows that he'll never achieve. You know, he's the type of person, if you watch Casey Affleck's performance, every time he enters a room, he leans his head against the doorway. He's always just on the periphery. He's never, he never occupies a commanding role in, in a room or in any conversation. He's always kind of lingering at the back, mm. waiting for his opportunity to kind of move to the fore. Um, and you see it especially when Jesse James is taking a bath And Casey Affleck enters behind and he's looking at him like he is this Adonis like figure, like he's literally a Greek God Um, and he's like standing in his hallowed presence. And in my mind, when I saw that scene, you begin to see the wheels of jealousy turning in his head. The fact that he's ingratiated himself to this person and he's been allowed into his life and now he wants that life. And he he wants to be this like rippling Adonis like figure that men fear and that women want to be with and that yep. the newspapers want to write about. And, and you see it with like
0: the misplaced confidence that he has in, you know, these little bursts in the movie like he mm. he murders uh, Jesse James uh, cousin played by Jeremy Renner. Played by Jeremy Renner, yeah. yeah, incredible. But um yeah, and and like afterwards, the, like the morning after, he does this like gun spin. Yes, for this yes. guy Like he's like right. so unfazed by like everything that yeah. just went on. Yeah, and you're like. You should be a little afraid, man. Like, of course. You, you just killed Jesse's cousin. Yeah, like, yeah, this, yeah. Is, like, this
1: is what unfolds the rest well, of the film. Not, yeah, not to yeah, mention the guilt in. that he should feel about taking a human life. Right, yeah. and, and like he actually calls, fellow gang member. Like yes, you know? he didn't give he, a fuck. He calls everyone into the room to see him off into the afterlife. so He proud. was he's, like, like, see what I did? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. Well, to yeah. me, did you guys ever see Chimp Empire? No. Okay. So in that that basically is about like a chimp collective that's in the Congo. And they have this like sociology of like the alpha and then all the up and coming young bucks. And there's this weird thing that they do where it's like political. They'll like share bugs with certain bigger dogs just to get them on their side. And I feel like Jesse James is the alpha dog. And then, you know, Robert Ford is on the come up and he's like admiring him and kind of watching him from a distance because he wants to one day take over the clan and become the alpha male. It's like a weird like humans are you know descendants from apes so it's like a more complex version of what apes do in the jungle on their own is like they have this society and they play these political games to eventually get to a point where they can take out the alpha become the alpha and have a longer role and uh, rule than like the alpha dog. It's this weird game and that's what that beginning part was reminding me of is them socializing and there were certain groups that were taking place that yeah. were like a supporting Jesse James. And then you see this young book observing everything, seeing, you know, how can I become that? But um, there's
0: definitely something contradictory going on with like, you know, an, a gang of outlaws, right? Because they're, yeah. we have our own code. But yeah. how far does that code go? Where do we bend our own laws? Yeah, because, there, again, there's because, no law and order. Right. It, yeah. it, 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 this happens a little more in 310, you know, but uh, it's like, the, you know, if the gang leader is, is willing to kill his own dudes, you yeah. know, like, that, that says yeah. a lot about, like, his yeah. his motto. Yeah, but exactly. Also, like, what, what's leaving any of the other gang members from killing him? You know, it, it, it cuts both ways. Yeah. And that's what happens. It's, like,
2: purely here. out of respect, which is, like, I think why Jesse James is... Also, like, a, he doesn't like fully engage with everybody. Is because when you're the alpha dog, you have to have a certain distance with everybody because they could try to come up and take over. Um, in three ten to Yuma, there's a lot li- in the fr- in the new one. There's a line where they're like deciding whether they want to go to contention to get him, right. and he's like, "Oh, that's all the way over there, man. Why? You know, we're not gonna make it." He's like, "You think you can run this gang?" He's like, "Maybe I could." And then it's mm-hmm. that same idea of like. Oh, maybe I could be the alpha dog. Um, so that's why they have to keep alpha. Alpha males have to keep like a distance from their compadres because they could become jealous and want to take over what they have. You know, they're sitting there watching them, wanting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's more about like character in general, right? Yeah. Like if you can't trust the character of the people around you, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, I mean, and that's what happens to Jesse James throughout this movie is he starts to realize. He's gotten a bit too big for for his, you know, himself to contain. And he can't even trust his own gang members. He's not running uh, heists or or robberies anymore. Yeah. Because he he knows, like, someone's going to rat them out. Right. It's going to lead to his arrest. And and so that, you know, crippling anxiety ends up doing him in. Just because of the people he surrounded himself with, right? Like, these are characters he could not trust. And, like, he was smart enough to you know, to, to stay away. But like most of these gangs, just kind of, like you said, blow themselves up. Right. Because they, it's like the treasure of Sierra Madre. Right. It's like, if you get five outlaws like in the, in the desert and they all have this bag of gold, you know, they're gonna just kind of want it all for themselves. Right. Like everyone's going to have that,
1: that, that desire. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, the bounty had gotten so big on Jesse's head at the time And and the book actually gets into this, how later on in the old West, that trains would oftentimes run with less money and less valuables because of all the heists. And you see that in the opening train robbery of this film that Mm. they thought there was going to be all this money on the train. And there's actually very little. And this is something that probably took weeks of planning. And in the, in the book, they talk about having to wait a week or two weeks even to split the earnings amongst themselves, uh, and, which wow. by that time, because they planned on a couple of them getting caught and they did, uh, by, by that time, like there, there's probably no money left. Like Jesse and his brother have probably divided up the lion's share for themselves and yeah. then they're just scattering off like pittance to whoever didn't get arrested. Yeah. Um, but so it becomes clear that the life of an outlaw doesn't pay anymore. And so when they get the opportunity to turn Jesse in for the reward money, they all conspire to do that. And that's Mm -hmm. when Jesse really starts getting neurotic and not sleeping. And the film talks about how his eyes were soot stained from all the insomnia that he had, Um, which I think also is probably the guilt kind of withering away his conscience as well.
2: Mm. Yeah. So you think uh, Robert Ford did him a favor then put Uh, him out of his misery? because that seems like a torturous life. Well, I mean,
1: he had a semblance of a family life at that time. Right. He had a stable marriage and two kids. Which the movie kind of yeah, builds I, up. Yeah, I, I think he probably would have quietly faded into... Uh, like insane. No, I, I, I think he, he probably would have evaded the authorities and, and lived a quiet life. I think he was preparing yeah. himself for that life. I think he also would have faded out of
0: relevancy, though, in a lot of ways. He like would have. Him yeah. being assassinated at this point. Yes,
1: um, almost makes them a martyr. It's the same reason yeah. we talk about James Dean right. or Kurt Cobain. Absolutely. Yeah. They weren't assassinated, but they were snuffed out in their prime. Yeah. Um, and yeah. yes, that does contribute to somebody's legend because you always have to wonder what if, what would they have become? What would they have gone exactly. on to do?
0: And this idea that almost like they were so influential that the world pushed back. Right. Mm-hmm. Or something like that where it's mm-hmm. like, you know, that, and that makes him more of a legend. Like, oh man, that person really, yeah, they could have cut against the grain. Yeah. But we'll never know.
2: Yeah. It's kind of, yeah. It's, in real life though, I, I do feel like he was kind of a piece of shit. I mean, outlaws were pieces of shit. Mm, yeah, like yeah, in yeah. modern day standards, if you were running around gunning people down, robbing people, you belong in, you're a piece of shit. Yeah, I, um, I
0: really liked what you, you, you were telling me that Jesse James was the one to take credit for his like early yeah, robberies. Like so, he, he would- yeah, go ahead. It's that
2: well. He would leave notes for the press at his robberies and basically build his own narrative, and that's how he started getting out there. Was he would leave these like letters on what happened and kind of glorify it a little right. bit, and then the press started getting a hold of these and they would put it in the newspapers, and then wow. that's how and, he and that, became, and that got
0: me thinking. Like, yeah, he must have been lying and embellishing a little bit when he started. Exactly. You know, he wanted to get it picked up. Exactly. Then he became this beast, like like we said that yeah yeah he he couldn't contain anymore or contend with
1: yeah this film though sees him at a later time whereas I I think he's actually his ego has settled a little bit by yeah. the time we see the character in this film and he's kind of running away from that in the past it's like, like
0: he knows he's gonna die like, he does like he's
1: faced his fate for sure that specter is definitely hanging over him the yeah. entire film um, and what's really interesting after he dies I think that's when the film really takes on a new life when you see the aftermath yeah. of everything that happened and the Broadway performance that Charlie and Robert Ford staged 850 times <laughs> over the course of like two and a half years. It's, it's nutty. It's insane. It, it really yeah. is. And, and what's so, interesting. Yeah. It's so, the, so
0: depressing. The
1: Broadway <laughs> performance doesn't shy away from the cowardice of the killing. Right. They still portray the assassination was with, Je- with Jesse's back turned and Robert shooting him in the head. Yeah. Um, which I think over time, especially to Charlie Ford, played by Sam Rockwell ate at him in such a way because it's hard to live with the idea that you took a life without seeing that person's eyes as they fell. Yep. You know, Mm -hmm. there's something inherently effeminate and cowardly about taking a life that way. I also think there's something so interesting
0: with Charlie's position because he was so clearly watching everything happen. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. And now he's like stepped into the recreation so, uh, you know, he's broken the line from voyeurism to taking, you know, acceptance for his part in it too. Because yes. Yes. even though he did yes. not shoot Jesse James in the back of and he the was head against himself, it. he was standing right behind his brother, yeah. you know, right. with his right. gun waiting yep. in case anything else happened. And, 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 he, and he knows what he would have done because yeah. he, he felt the
1: same. And he plays Jesse in these recreations. So he kind of dies that spiritual death so many times that I think he maybe understands what Jesse was going through at the time that he died. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he also has the additional guilt of being the one that and brought his brother into the gang. Right. Like Charlie was in the, 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 the Jesse's gang first before yeah. Robert was and Robert weaseled his way in only because Charlie had already made a name for himself in the gang.
2: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You had mentioned they had even obviously they changed things, but they gave him the duster the dust when he's are so it, funny when he's like, well, in the picture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's
0: where it just becomes a little more like comical and stagey. Yeah. You know, exactly. Like, cause yeah. they're wearing like the white face paint, you know, it's like, it's all those, those things that you would do on stage yeah. back then. Yeah. But like, I also, yeah. Like, even the moment when it when the assassination all goes down, it's kind of crazy that, you know, Jesse Dan's like, okay, now I set my guns down, you know? Yeah. And we're going to oh, walk on over to this it's painting. Like he's narrating like, The it. whole thing feels stagey even when it yeah. happens the yeah. first yeah. time. Mm. And it almost you, it makes you wonder, like, is this the agreed-upon story that they just kind of, you know, sold? In, or, you know, or is there a truth? Is there another way this went down? Are we seeing it
2: through Robert Ford's perspective? Right. Maybe that's like because he's a little dumber. Maybe it's like narrated in his perspective of like what happened. Robert Ford is the one that told the story. Cause he's the one that killed him. So it could all the entire movie. I mean, what we know is from his perspective. So that narration could be homage to like kind of a dumbed, doled down version because Robert Ford is not like an intelligent person well, to begin with
1: relative to his brother though, he's seen as the smarter. Oh, that's true. Like he, he is seen as a a kind of conniving figure. Yeah. Um, that Jesse clearly worries more about, especially as the film goes on, he, he doesn't worry about Sam Rockwell's character at all, but it's it's really Robert Ford. Yeah.
0: Well, there's something about like the guy who knows everything about you, Mm. you know, because like there's a really great dinner scene after, uh, Jesse, Jesse's cousin's been killed basically. Um, right. And, and, uh, Dick Little has, like, left town. Yeah. Um, the best. The best name ever. <laughs> 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 the go right there. Um, Just
2: trying to finesse everybody's girl, dude.
0: But it, it's so great because, like, they they start that that dinner scene and, like, you know, Sam Rockwell's basically like, hey, yo, don't, don't mention anything about Dick Little unless mm-hmm. he, like, brings it up. And he yeah. does maybe say this. Yeah. And, and then, like, yeah, it, he, uh, <laughs> I mean... Yeah, Robert Ford walks into the dinner scene and immediately spills the beans. Yeah, he he has no filter. He's like he's so scared of Jesse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. But but then that the rest of that scene is about like Jesse poking and seeing how much further can he can he take this? Yeah. Because he knows something's up. Yeah. Like very very clearly.
2: Robert Ford's a he seems a little autistic.
0: He does he does though that I think that he doesn't seem like an idiot. He just doesn't have like social grace. Yeah. And, And I think he like tries to play the social grade the, the lack of social grace in that scene yeah but i think Jesse is also like you i know that you know more yeah. about me like tell me why we're yeah. the same tell me like all the details about me you've memorized because because i know you're not just playing shy right now yeah you exactly well, and i feel like I that scene conniving.
2: him doing that kind of like heightens the nervousness of everybody cuz him like accidentally saying what's on his mind um, what he's not supposed to be saying kind of spills the beans on like the entire group being nervous and Jesse James you can tell that I don't know Brad Pitt's depiction you can he, it just feels like he knows the whole time so the entire the entire aftermath of his cousin getting shot it just feels like Jesse James knows right so like them kind of him spilling the beans and then them kind of like trying to build the story like on that whim Kind of builds that like uh, that tension, that is un- It's like the beginning of that tension.
0: Yeah, and at this point, you've already seen Jesse call out one of his other gang. Yeah, members. exactly. Yeah. So you know, you, you, he's at least on that trail. You think
2: that's what he's there for, anyway? Right. He just shows up in the middle of the night. It's like, hey, what's up, guys? What are you fuckers doing? It,
1: it, yeah. Uh, we, I think we forget too. Robert Ford was only twenty years old, um, when he Young first book. met Jesse James. Yeah. And it, everyone else in the film. Jesse is 34 at the time of the film and you, you have to assume that everyone else is probably also around Jesse's age. So not only is Robert Ford stuck in this arrested state of development where he really hasn't matured into an adult, but he's also just very young. He's like kind of the run to the litter. That's kind of just like, always trailing behind. Mm. And so I, I think it makes sense that he hasn't cultivated these sort of social graces because yeah. he hasn't, it doesn't really seem like he's participated in society even mm. outside of just reading dime he, store. He definitely
0: has little brother vibes, like the yeah. little brother of the gang. I mean, that that's the first encounter is they're like, go away and you know, don't, don't show up to tonight's like thing. And then he, yeah. he shows up anyways. And they're like, they, what they, are you going to do? They like,
2: are in yeah. Missouri too, which is like bumfuck nowhere. They're out in the, the back country of Missouri, which yeah. is like, you know, a lot of people back then, their ancestors, again, of not too far of people who just moved across the country and they haven't really spent much time in cities or any kind of civilization other than the Civil War, which was, you know, them marching on different cities throughout the United States and not even through the whole United States, but like in that relative territory. Um, so yeah, I can imagine if you grew up in that, like right before that, you haven't really seen much other than the country, which is, uh, you know, pretty dull.
1: Yeah. It's pretty clear when Robert Ford enters, uh, the story at the very beginning, he, I noticed this time he's wearing very ratty clothes. Like his hat has yeah. a hole in it and it like just seems like that's the only thing he owns. Yeah. He's completely skinny. He's famished. And he just kind of shows up in the middle of the woods. Yeah. So like how, how does he even know that his brother is out here? You it, know? Yeah.
0: Like did he get a letter from his brother weeks ago? Yeah. And like just, spent every cent he had to like track him
1: down. It's, it's, he's almost like this like wraith that's just kind of like lingering in the (laughs) land. And he just sort of enters the fray, you know, randomly after a while. Um, yeah, you, you have absolutely no idea where Robert Ford came from, what his home life was, where he was born, originated. None of that is talked about. He just kind of appears. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it's interesting because Sam Rockwell seems a little bit more well adjusted. Um, and, like a normal person. It seems like he's at one time maybe made his living an honest way. There's some sort of moral center to him, whereas that's completely absent in Robert Ford. Exactly. By the time that we've finished the stage reenactments following Jesse's death, Sam Rockwell's character, Charlie Ford is the one that's plagued by guilt and this accumulation of, of the betrayal and the public calling out his betrayal. The public was totally on Jesse's side at the time of his death. Um, there was, I, I forget how many people attended his funeral, but it was like basically the population of a small city at that time. All to see his body being wheeled out on ice. It makes sense though, because
0: they, the way they talk about that photograph of, uh, Jesse yeah. being, mm. being shown with all the eight wonders, like this, this image of him, you know, just had a myth to it. That, that yeah. People wanted well, there to were see.
2: many images of him. I mean, there was only young, you know. Well, there Everyone,
0: weren't many images of anything of anybody. Back, right? Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. Um, but imagine not knowing what somebody looks like, but knowing so much about them, like just having paintings and drawings and depictions of you know people's description of him. Um, that was you know imagination back then. You know that's really all you had.
0: Yeah, I mean, basically just a box of stuff, right? Like we yeah. see. Yeah, Robert Ford's just got that one exactly. shoe box. Yeah. Full of stuff, which and, is
2: a lot to have. Yeah, back like then
0: it it is, but also like I I love that scene where yeah. it's like you know if if that's all you have like people are gonna look through your shoebox. He gets right? so yeah. mad, right? right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But but that, <laughs> that fucking touch that, my shit. Yeah, and that builds in the seed of like why he's gonna go and kill Jeremy Renner later. Yeah, and you know, he's like he's not gonna kill his, his cousin. You yeah, know, but, it makes like, sense that
2: he pulls the trigger after yeah. that scene. It's like.
0: But you see the hate building him and the jealousy. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's exactly what's mirrored with, with Jesse James later. And yeah. you know. right,
1: it, what, what's so interesting is that Robert Ford adores Jesse for so much of this movie, and then the adoration and the jealousy begin to build side by side. But then, when given the opportunity to assassinate him to make a name for himself, he immediately takes it. Right. It's actually kind of stunning, like how quickly he decides to betray Jesse. To kill him in order to get that adulation that he desires.
0: Yeah. Well, there is like they at least have the framing device of um, Dick Little was was captured and then the mm. newspaper article. Yeah, that's what out, I was. Which thinking. Jesse so sees right before he's. Killed. He, I think so he's afraid for I, his life. I think I think that's at least how the movie's trying to frame it. Where yeah, exactly. It's like, he's worried this might be his last chance to kill Jesse yeah. before Jesse kills him. Yeah. But also, like Jesse has just gifted him this gun. Right. Uh, which feels so out of character for Jesse out
1: of no way. I felt like Jesse was leading him toward his assassination that he knew that unless he kind of put the wheels in motion that Robert Ford wasn't going to kill him. And he had kind of made peace with his fate. Interesting. And was Mm. you, he saw this opportunity coming for him to escape his life, which had tortured him. So, and he kind of held Robert Ford's hand and led him to the assassination. Mm. That's what that whole scene kind of for me was telegraphing.
2: Yeah. Yeah yeah it's weird and then him like hiding the newspaper and still having that at the forefront of his mind pretty much at all times being in that house um, right as that scene is taking place you can tell that it's building up to oh I, I need to panic like this is panic mode it's time to panic that's what he does hiding the newspaper is like oh f- oh fuck and then he just watches him go over pick up the pill and go what the fuck
1: what was interesting it? is Jesse sees the newspaper, but it's almost like he had memorized the headlines on both uh, stacks of newspapers that he had. Mm. Because he he looks at the newspaper and goes, he, he knows that that wasn't the one that he placed on top. And then immediately mm. looks under the pillow and finds yeah. the other newspaper. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I think he had already read everything. He was yeah. just placing it there so that Robert Ford would know that he read it.
2: Mm. Oh, yeah. Man. I mean, I, I can see that. Because the weird thing is, again, the way Brad Pitt, like... Um, kind of projects his character is that he does know like the whole time you think Jesse James knows. Um, it's just a matter yeah. of what is he going to do about it?
0: Well, and I think the lie like was just that they didn't see Dick little too. Like they, you know, right. Like he, he had just come by. They, they didn't hear anything about the killing. So yeah. he could still lie his way out of this situation. Like, mm. you know, I, even, even if Jesse knows that, that, Robert Ford knows something more about the situation. Yeah. He doesn't know that he's betrayed him yet.
2: Yeah. The weird thing is I don't, in real life, I don't think we'll ever know the actual psychology of what was going on. You know, like this is a, this is what I'm saying. It's like a Robert Ford's um, story of what happened, but we don't know what was actually going on in real life. He could have actually known. He could have not known anything. Um, That's, the interesting it is a movie um and yeah, i wonder i
0: wonder if they ever got the wife's account accounting or anything like yeah. that cuz there there were other people in the house yeah exactly you know? yeah
2: cuz that's kind of what it was in real life i believe the story was he had portrayed his that's why they called him a coward and that's why everyone hated him so much and eventually it led to robert ford's assassination but
0: yeah also that i think he thought this would be something courageous, yeah. right? There's that line, like, what did you expect, applause? Yeah. Right? Mm. Um, he, did, he, he did expect
1: applause. because yeah. exactly. And he didn't get it.
0: But because Jesse was built up as the biggest villain in the world, and so it's like, well, who's better than the biggest villain, the, the hero who takes him down, right? yeah. But, like, life, again, life is more nuanced than that because what other people saw was someone so close to him shot him in the back when he was at his most vulnerable. Yeah. Making him empathetic, like, yeah. you know, in that situation.
1: What's interesting, Robert Ford actually did get the fame that he desired. It just came with a price. Well, Infamy. Yeah. He got the yes. infamy. You yeah. Know? So the film says that at the time of Jesse's death, more people could correctly identify Robert Ford than the president of the United States. Yeah. Oh my God. He yeah. was that much of a nationally known figure. Um, and it's interesting because right after that, you get the scene where he's in this tavern in Colorado be- yes. before he founds his own bar. Right. Um, and there's a man singing and that man is actually Nick cave who composed the score for the film. Oh, that's he, dope. he is and he's actually a, a, an amazing singer in real life. Yeah. Um, and he's the one that wrote the song and is singing it about right. Jesse's death. Uh, and, and that he left behind a wife and three children to which, Robert Ford shoots the floor and and basically says it was two. Like as he's like almost crying, and
0: then he drunkenly
1: like stumbles on the ground, and they throw him out. Yeah, Yeah. and and, but nobody knew it was him. Like right. at once he's this nationally known figure, but on the other hand, he's still a wallflower that blends into any room that he walks of into. Course. Yeah. The, the only thing people know him by is this single act of cowardice, but right. nothing else about his character is memorable. And the mm-hmm. idea
0: that like, yeah, you, you would only know him if he told you to, yes. because yeah, like why, yeah, you know the name. Well, yeah. It's just like he's, he looks familiar, you yeah. know, yeah. but like you, you don't, no one wants to remember a guy like this yeah. in, in, in some ways.
1: But I have to say the performance itself is so memorable. It's incredible. It's Casey. Casey Affleck was, was nominated for an Oscar for this role and lost. Uh, well, it was a really tough year
0: because you have year.
1: no country for old men and yep. there will be blood. Right. So no, no, it was a welcome to the club kind of nomination. For sure. Um, And he, you know, he, he, this is the same year that gone baby gone came out. And yeah. so both films really, Elevated his profile. He wasn't even seen as like a real actor before that. Mm, You know, right. He had, I mean, I, if you go back and watch like early Ben Affleck films, like he's in Chasing Amy, the Kevin Smith film. Like they just kind of threw him like a thousand bucks to just be on screen that day. Mm, Yeah. Cause, but, uh, but this, he became an actor in his own right. Um, The way he carries himself is incredible. His shoulders are just folded in the entire movie. He's like this withering, like, human being. Uh, The way he makes his voice crack throughout the film is absolutely incredible. Like, it's always wavering. It's always on the cusp of crying, but not quite. And I think that,
0: like, Mm -hmm. that's why he plays, like, the, the little brother of the gang so well. Like, even though he's not 20... In that first scene when they shoot it, no, like, he's in his
1: 30s, I believe. He, when I know, he shot this he, movie, he yeah. looks like a young, he like a young. kid. Like, he yeah, that you definitely—he's very that. scrawny too.
0: It's interesting. So you brought up the that 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 great bar scene. Oh, I, um, that's
1: one of my favorite scenes yeah. in the film.
0: And so, like, I've also seen there's another film called I Shot Jesse James mm-hmm. from like I don't know the 30s or 40s, mm. and they have that same scene. Oh, interesting. Where a guy is singing uh, about Jesse James and like how he's a murderer. And Jesse James is at the bar, and he turns around, and but it's it's a menacing scene that happens towards the beginning mm. of the movie, and establishes um, him as almost like a, as someone not to mess with, right? Mm. Um, and it's just it's it's a complete one eighty from from Casey Affleck's version of Robert Ford. Mm. There, there, there's you know, he believes he could be someone like Jesse James, but he could never fill the shoes. Yeah, yeah.
1: And what's amazing too about the last scene in the movie where Robert Ford is killed is it almost mirrors the same way that Jesse was walking through his own house, like a ghost waiting for his death. Robert Ford is doing the exact same thing in the bar that he owns in Colorado oh, yeah. where he accepts all of the death threats that he gets on a daily basis. The film says that he can read them without any response because he's been people have threatened to kill him so many times. Mm. But he knows in the back of his mind that somebody will make good on one of these threats. That mm. one day his somebody will come to kill him, and eventually yeah. that does happen. Yeah.
0: Someone chasing fame the way he chased it, <clears throat> yeah. especially in this epilogue, like we get the sense that he has thought about his deeds and yeah. grown a bit past it. So I think he he would understand why another, it, not even another twenty year old, but like someone else who's just been disillusioned by their life mm. would want to come and kill him.
2: Did that person become? somewhat famous
0: no probably no. for a week yeah you know what i mean yeah.
2: they were known yeah but but yeah. also
0: no like because
2: that was kind of a big thing you think about like john wilkes booth right you know like assassinating people was a way to come up um it was yeah, a, they, a way to, to get your name out right. there and become infamous it's like,
1: why we don't talk about the names of uh, mass shooters anymore yeah because exactly it, you want to rob that from them so takes away yes. the incentive to do it in the yeah first exactly
2: yeah, and that probably caught wind Take away the platform. with yeah. something like Robert Ford assassinating, you know, him is that, you know, oh, I can do this too. Who, who should yep. I assassinate?
0: It's still... Get it my name out was, there. Wasn't there like a assassination attempt on Reagan by... There, like guy, there was yeah, 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 yeah. He, he wanted to kill reagan so he that jody foster would recognize <sighs> him. Yes. As i'd do the equal. same damn thing like he thought killing a, a legend makes you a legend <laughs> it's a lot <logic>, right
1: <laughs> it, that is <laughs> so crazy it yeah insane. <laughs> it's insane
0: that's what i'm saying he's a cat it's like a
2: cowardice act it's like a i want to take somebody's life to become infamous to get my name on the papers, and can you imagine like building into that? It's almost like a taxi driver like mentality, where yeah,
1: king of comedy, right? Yeah, uh, a that, taxi driver, a film that Jodie Foster stars in. Yeah, exactly, yeah, <laughs> which is a good point. Yeah, when
2: that's what he probably watched. I'm yeah. almost positive what he watched to get that, you know, yeah. mindset. I believe that was
1: her first role, if I'm not mistaken. Well, yeah, she's, yeah,
2: which so? is crazy. So he he ass- he attempted to assassinate president for a little girl.
1: Well, she I mean, was older. No, no, no. Taxi driver okay. was made in 75. Okay. Reagan became president in 1980, so this would would have been almost 10 years later. She was getting older. She was yeah, she was 13 and 75. She would have been 22, 23 at the time that
0: There you go. Yeah.
1: That's better.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to find this I, fucker dude, and I I'm going to assassinate this, ser- this
1: potential serial killer. Was, yeah. was, was was a bad guy, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> good to know he's good.
2: Oh yeah, he's fine.
1: I, I think it's also worth mentioning. Well, first of all, this film is just stacked with uh, an all-star cast, and a lot of these people were in this film before they really broke out. You have, yeah, uh, I mean, well, not Sam, only Sam
0: Rockwell, Sam Rockwell, Sam Shepard is, oh, is a well, Sam Shepard. Yeah, he's, he's a
1: legend. Yeah,
0: uh, that, that's just a tip of the hat to like. Right. Can we get a legend of of the you know the Western system in mm-hmm. here? It was like Peter
1: Fonda's in this too uh right is i know there's a guy that looks like peter fonda is not?
0: I, I swear he's in this no, no no
1: i i know what character you're referring to it's, yeah it's not peter fonda okay i believe I, I i could be wrong yeah but i was actually more talking about uh mary louise parker zoe de has a really oh
0: my God, critical yeah. scene yeah. in this
1: movie where right. you do get a bit of um insight into robert ford's character in his evolution and perhaps the establishing of some sort of moral order within him Mm. because you, it starts to examine the guilt that he feels um, and his psychology and being motivated to kill Jesse in the first place. And it's, it's really amazing because Zoe Deschanel has these eyes that just invite you in Mm -hmm. and you get this, you immediately understand why Robert Ford is opening himself up to this woman because she does seem to possess so much empathy in the way that she looks at him. Mm. Um, And you, you don't know if it's, She's just being paid, you know, for her companionship. Or if she she genuinely wants to spend time with him, that's really not made clear. Right. He's probably paid her. I'm I'm assuming. Yeah. I mean, she's a dancer. She's in, a, so,
0: in some ways it doesn't matter. What matters
1: is that he got to a point he could open up. Yes. You know. Yes. Mm. Um. Yeah. And the, and the only thing that he can talk about is his friendship with Jesse and how he thought trading this friendship in for fame and adulation would make his life better, but in fact made it worse.
0: Yeah.
1: Zoe Deschanel is really good in that performance. Yeah, Like she,
0: the, the initial, like you said, uh, like, like actual, uh, saloon style, like mm. song, like she is mm-hmm. so striking in mm. cause, she, cause she's a really talented musician as well. And yeah. singer in real life. Like mm. I, every time I see the, or both times I've seen this film, I, 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 was like, is that her? And then I'm like, it's not her. Like yeah. she convinces you that she, yeah. she's like just someone random. And then she starts talking later and you're like, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she rules. That that's that's hard to do, just like to fully disappear for a second. You yeah, know? It, yeah, especially with period, um, to like feel like you belong because like Brad Pitt is absolutely the type of guy who like looks. You know, you think about Tyler Durden, like you think about like you know him with an undercut. You think about like all these modern roles that that prick, yes, know, Pitt can embody. Well, this you know
1: this movie was the first film that he did to separate himself from the movie star type of roles that had made him in the first place. right? And technically this came out after Babel, but I believe it was shot before Babel because Warner Brothers did not know what to do with this movie and they let it sit on a shelf for a while. Wow. $30 million film. It grossed just over $3 million domestically. Mm. which is partly Warner Brothers' fault because they wouldn't distribute this film definitely. wide. I remember when the teaser trailer dropped for this film, it was playing in theaters as a big Brad Pitt film to come out. right? And mm. then the film just never came out. And the, the teaser trailer is amazing. It's so haunting. You're just like, whoa. And you see Brad Pitt's shadow emerge from the train smoke the walking silhouette. towards yeah. screen. One of the and I'm just like... Yeah, movie. it's so good. It didn't matter if they had to misadvertise the film to get people in that first opening right. weekend they still should have done it they would have made some money yeah.
0: i, I it's, it's it seems like a thing where like the studio was too afraid to release a western and then all of a sudden Westerns are hot. Yeah, but there will be bloods coming out. No Country for Old Three Men. Three amazing like, westerns came th- out. This right, film, like in, we have to do it.
1: This film and the Three Ten to Yuma oh, remake f- came four. out within one week of each other in September of 2007. Whoa. they
0: killed each other's business. Like, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Three Ten yeah. to
1: Yuma, I believe, was number one at the box office that weekend. Mm. But it was a week number one. Right. Um, it, it was right when the recession was starting to loom, and theaters weren't making as much money. And you had all these films that were coming out. Um, that were expensive to make, that weren't opening very well. Yeah, so I think it's
0: worth noting that this movie was produced by Plan B, yes, which is Brad, Brad Pitt's, Pitt's company, production
1: yep. company. Uh, who he produced with D.D. Garner. Yeah, uh, and now Plan B is D.D. Garner, Brad Pitt, and Jeremy Kleiner. Um, they're really responsible for a lot of the successes. Um, Jeremy Kleiner, anyone who's worked in Hollywood, will know that he's. One of the most hardworking guys, like mm-hmm. famously sleeps like four or five hours a night. But oh my he's god! He's produced every he and Dede Gardner produce everything that uh, Plan B has been behind for the last fifteen years. Yeah, um, they've
0: definitely opened up a ton in what they've been producing, yeah,
1: including three Best Picture winners: The Departed, which was supposed to be a Brad Pitt David Fincher project before it became Leo and Scorsese. So crazy! Uh, Twelve <laughs> so Years a crazy, Slave, man. Steve McQueen, right, and Moonlight. Yeah, they have three oh, wow. best picture Got winners Barry to Jenkins their name. Like going, you know, yep. mm. yeah,
0: yeah, and, and like they've done all the other Andrew Dominic films too. Like yeah, Dick Killing Them Softly and Blonde. Yes, uh, Blonde
1: was originally so when I first came to town and I was reading scripts. Blonde was one of the first scripts that I read at this company called Exclusive Media, who produced Rush, which was part of the reason that they went bankrupt because it was a very expensive film that yeah. did not make any money. Um, at the time, it didn't have anybody attached to it. And then I went to a different company and it was Jessica Chastain and Brad Pitt who were supposed to star in Blonde. Um, Interesting. Yes. Mm. Jessica Chastain was going to gain all this weight to play a curvy Marilyn Monroe.
0: It was Brad Pitt going to be the Arthur Miller character? It's unclear.
1: Um, I don't know. At the time, CAA was out pitching it with a $15 million budget with Jessica Chastain and Brad Pitt, which to me was a no-brainer. But I couldn't get anybody to read the script because when you're pitching the script, you're like, well, it's this like hallucinatory nightmare. That's uh, a portrait of a woman in the midst of this traumatic experience. It's like a fractured portrait that's right. not told in chronological order. And there's rape and there's all this other like awful stuff. And everyone's like, yeah, that sounds like a pass. You know, exact, just,
0: exactly. Everyone's like, I wanted a easy biopic. Yes. To say yes, yes. to. <laughs>
1: Uh, Andrew Dominic has long said that Brad Pitt is the 800 pound gorilla in the room that has helped open doors for him in his career. Oh, yeah. I don't see him ever working on a film without Brad Pitt on in some producerial capacity. Mm. Um, I actually think because Blonde was not seen as a success, it was a $22 million film uh, on Netflix. Uh, that's, a, that's a modest budget. Very modest. Yeah. For Netflix, that's air. That's right. nothing. Mm. Um, and outside of the Oscar nomination for Anna de Armas, uh, which I think is well-earned, uh, the film had a largely negative response. Yeah. It, any article that you pull up on that film is negative.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, Netflix... Hated it from the offset because it was NC seventeen and it wasn't this thing that they can market. And Dominic
1: refused to edit the film, which I'm I'm sure he soured his relationship with Netflix over that. Probably. So he's going to need something more commercial to bring him back. I would not be surprised if he tackles another genre project with Brad Pitt starring.
0: Killing Them Softly too.
1: Something like that. (laughs) I I, I, he's going to have have to to consciously choose something more commercial.
0: I, I know, I, but Pitt's at such an interesting area too. Like, it, I do wonder what... He's
1: still one of the last movie stars that we have that has a true movie star aura around him. Right. And, and Plan B is so successful. You can see after Troy and Mr. and Mrs. Smith, where Brad Pitt kind of cemented his A-lister status, Right, he immediately moves into Babel and Assassination of Jesse James, Burn After Reading, and Benjamin Button, mm. which are all really conscious attempts to kind of stretch both the type of roles that he was playing and his acting ability and the, the caliber of movies in into new heights. Right. And then it really goes further with inglorious bastards in the tree of life, oh my God, which, which yeah. are, mm. I think tree of life and assassination of Jesse James are the t- two of the best films of the 21st century. They're certainly in the top 10 for me, especially amongst mm. American made films. Yeah. Um, tree of life, and I recently got to sit down and watch the extended director's cut, which is about 45 minutes longer. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's just, a, it's a beautiful film. Unfortunately, Terrence Malick has kind of kept to that same cinematic language without evolving it since that film. But I can't r- tell you how groundbreaking it felt to watch that film in theaters when it came out and to see how experimental and how different its language felt in contrast to the rest of the cinema that was coming out. Right. Uh, it was it was really an event. Tree- a Tree of Life was a true event on the art house circuit. I, Me and my parents drove to Boston to see this movie at a, in a sold out screening wow. for people that were so excited. Because uh, I mean, Terrence I, Malick is such a mythic. I was barely figure. getting into
0: movies, I think, when it when it kind of came out. Okay, and, but I remember there being buzz like around the indie house there, and it, it was the type of. I was at the point of time where, like, not a lot got to me. So the fact that Buzz got to me, I, like, it put Malik on my radar, yeah. like, early on. Uh, it's been something I've, I've wanted to get to for a while.
1: You haven't seen Tree of Life.
0: I have not. I mm. Yeah, I've just just started with Malik. really. I did uh, Thin Red Line, yeah. which I thought was actually incredible. It's good.
1: Uh, I actually think it's probably the my least favorite of his films. I I think I I've heard that. And I think because I started there, you know, like I have nothing to to compare
0: it to, you know? So, um, you know, it, it, but it's probably like, like a guy like, you know, Miyazaki or Kurosawa where I'm just like any one of their films is probably a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. It's just like, you're splitting hairs on like your favorites, you know, know, a lot mm -hmm. of ways.
1: Yeah. If you're, if you're starting with stray dog, well, it's not going to yeah. be as good as Kagamusha. Okay, yeah, know.
0: fair enough. Miyazaki has like no no misses at all, but no, Well,
1: Kurosawa's I, got a couple, I, slides, you know. I did a Miyazaki marathon because all the uh, retro houses were playing his movies. Yeah, uh, and they do like like once a year. They'll they'll just run through all of his movies. Of course, uh, Castle in the Sky. I didn't think that was that great.
0: That's a that's just Ghibli though. That's not like he he didn't direct that one. do no, no, uh, Castle in the Sky. Castle in the Sky. Wait, you don't like Castle in the Sky? No, well,
1: Howl's Moving Sky, I know there's- Howl's Moving Castle. Howl's Moving Castle, yeah. Yeah. Castle in the Sky, no, I didn't like. I, I didn't I didn't oh, care man. for it that much.
0: I actually like that a lot.
1: That's and and nice. I also thought Spirited Away was overrated. I think Spirited Away is
0: overrated. I, I need to see it again, though. I, I think Spirited Away is the first Miyazaki a lot of people see. Yes. So they treat it like this fantastical experience, yep. you know, which I get. It was also nominated for incredible. Best
1: Animated uh, Film. Actually, yeah. it won Best Animated Film.
0: Yeah, the second year, that was this, a category. That was
1: a category. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Yeah, you guys got any final thoughts on this film? Uh, So actually, I just want to talk about Andrew Dominic for a little bit. Yes. um, Who obviously directed Assassination of Jesse James. He he directed Killing Them Softly, also starring Brad Pitt, Blonde, and an Australian film called Chopper with a very overweight, stocky Eric Bana, basically playing... A Tom Hardy Bronson like figure in prison before Bronson was a thing. Mm. Uh, Chopper is a really interesting serial comic look at the life of the, this famous Australian prisoner that both broke Andrew Dominic out and Eric Banna out. Eric Banna immediately became an American star following this film and was cast in The Hulk and right. a bunch of other films following. Um, but Dominic is a really interesting filmmaker. He, I think he's actually in the top five best working filmmakers uh, that we have, especially in American film. Uh, he just gets to make so few films because he's such an uncompromising figure. Right. And I've heard this, I've heard other directors say this about him uh, who I won't name, but Do, you know, Dominic has, is polarizing both his, in his person and in his filmography. But for me, I really identify with that because he has such a singular voice. He's so idiosyncratic and you can immediately tell that you're watching something different when you watch his films.
0: I I think, especially in this modern landscape, like you really have, don't get me wrong, you have to pick your fights, but you also have to really fight for the things that are important to your work because if if you let it go on too much and you take too many notes from too many sources, you'll just dilute what you had yeah. to, to start with, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, people were really coming after him for the talking fetus scene in blonde uh, because following the Marilyn Monroe's first abortion in the film, she has what may be a real or imagined conversation with the fetus that's growing inside of her yeah. after that first abortion. And the fetus is saying, why did you kill me? You know, I wanted to be born. I was growing inside you and she's like breaks down talking to her baby. That's growing inside of her. And a lot of people took umbrage with this and it was like, uh, I don't know if we should be getting into this. Like what does life, when does life really start? Mm. And and Dominic goes, why does my film need to be politically correct? It's not running for public office. That was his official quote on that yeah. controversy, which I thought was amazing.
0: That, that film mm. also starts with them, uh, with, with her talking to her dad as a picture frame. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. and, and like she never met her dad, obviously she didn't know who her dad necessarily was like, for, for most of her life. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just like that makes sense, like in the language of the film that, yeah. that has been established.
1: <laughs> but in Killing Them Softly, and this film was made in 2012, so it was a different time, certainly. But, man, is this a mean, nasty, uncompromising film. Probably the polar opposite of Jesse James in every single way. Mm. Uh, some of the dialogue that Dominic puts into his character's mouth, which admittedly is lifted from the book, is is really jarring and disgusting. Uh he makes no bones about what low lives these people are, but he finds the language and the rhythms in their dialogue just in the same way that he found the language and the rhythms in the dialogue in Jesse James, where you feel like you've you've tuned into the wavelength of the time and and what you're hearing is complete total authenticity captured the way it was. Yeah. And you totally feel that in Killing Them Softly. Uh that's partly because George V Higgins was a criminal psychologist uh, before he became an author. So he spent a lot of time with these low lives and he just knows how they speak. Um, But he finds guys like Ben Mendelsohn before he got his big break and Scoot McNeary to really sell the dialogue.
0: Yeah. I found that movie to be incredibly brutal. I I mean, I I watched it it when I was in high school and and I loved it, you know, for, for being brutal in all the right ways. But yes. um, Oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's also just like, it, it it felt raw and modern in a way like yeah. i feel like a lot of a lot of gangster movies don't
1: yeah i mean it was made during the last recession uh, you know which is a, i mer- i remember it was a really tough time my parents lost their entire fortune there was a lot of people that are out of work Uh, It was, it was bleak and that bleakness and anger is really captured in that film Mm. and the false promises of the politicians. It takes, it takes down everybody. It takes down Bush, it takes down McCain, it takes down Obama. Mm. The film basically equates all of them as the same type of snake oil salesman politician that promises to do all these things and then never does, which Brad Pitt calls out in his monologue at the end, basically saying that, you know Obama is, is preaching this future of America being this community where everyone takes care of each other. And Brad Pitt reminds Richard Jenkins that that was never the promise of America. The promise of America is an adventure. Mm. And you're on that adventure by yourself and you look after yourself. This idea of community doesn't exist here. Yeah. Now fucking pay me. <laughs> it's, it's such an amazing way to yeah. end that movie. It's incredible. That's
2: so dope. Yeah, it's ironic that it's called Killing Them Softly and it's incredibly violent. You know?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it the, his character, despite all the violence that he commits he has to divorce himself from the emotion of actually killing a person. Mm. You know, he, he tells um, Richard Jenkins when Richard Jenkins says, well, why can't you kill this guy? He says, because I know squirrel squirrel hired me for a job once. You know, he are kind of friendly. He knows who I am. And he's like, have you ever killed anyone before? And Richard Jenkins says, no. And he goes, well, they cry, they plead, they beg, they piss themselves. They call for their mothers. It gets messy. It gets touchy feely. Mm. He's like, I like to do it from a distance. Yeah. Um, Mm. Which, which shows that, Dominic, despite following all these deplorable characters, always kind of comes back to their, their moral groundings, uh, or or their lack thereof, or the way that they find those morals throughout the course of the story. Um, I think man naturally has that innate sense of good and evil within him. Uh, that's now up for debate. People can say that they're societal constructs and that we're born into it, and that we've been inculcated in it so long that we can't tell the difference, but I actually do think people are born with an innate sense of what is good and what is evil. And I think that crops up in Dominic's work time and time again.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It centers on character, you know, and the action has to reveal the character essentially in in all these films. And, and yeah, he's, he was probably more interested with, Marilyn Monroe as a failed figure, you know, than, than as like a an infallible one, mm-hmm. you know, which is why he, he told the story he did with, with Blonde. Yeah. Mm. Cool. Let's take a quick break. Come right back with 310 to Yuma. Great.
2: Which is pretty sick. Lipso, that's the shit I take. Because it's actually like super bioavailable. It's like a new technology they've put with supplements where it like kind of... Gets past the um, the acidic layer in your stomach. So a lot of vitamins are just like burned down and not absorbed. Um, but liposol is like a, has like a little biohack. Gets through the uh, first layer. Gets in your system. Biohack this shit. Hey, you get a little biohack. But yeah,
0: just gonna uh, osmosis Jones this pill into your body. You need to just inject it directly into Never seen it.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I've seen it on Comedy
1: Central. I, I know it was a Farrelly Brothers film
0: that didn't do that well. Oh, yeah. The, the Bill Murray is like the guy whose body is being like oh, infested. Yes, and then yes. Chris Rock is, is playing Osmosis yes. Jones, who's an agent. like a, He's like a white blood cell agent. Like basically yeah. it's like there to fight like intrud intruders or whatever. Yeah.
1: It, it, it's it's pretty amazing what Hollywood used to roll the dice on back in the day. I mean,
0: dude, the the animation is at least like, it's not, I wouldn't say it's it's on Roger rabbit level, but like they did all this 2d animation. Yeah. They, they put it with a couple live
1: action sequences. It's like, it couldn't have
0: been a cheap film
1: to make. No, no. But that's what I love about these films, you know, from the past is that, they used to actually take risks on big budget original films yeah. that weren't guaranteed. Successes. Because that's what
0: all the f- original IPs were. They were all, mm-hmm. you know, like Jurassic park, like is an adaptation of a novel. Sure. But like nobody was expecting that to be no, that the Chris Pratt no. franchise and, and 20 years and later. And They
1: smartly, I don't know if you've ever read the original Michael Crichton adaptation of his own novel, Jurassic park. Mm-mm. That's what he originally turned into the studio. It's absolutely unreadable. Really? It's horrible, yeah. horrible, They were very smart. Sometimes a lot of people like to complain about development executives meddling with story ideas and scripts. Yeah. Sometimes it's it's warranted. I I did that earlier. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes it's warranted. The the opening pages of this, it's like, he's immediately talking about like some woman exposing herself and like her shirts undone and her breasts are visible. And I'm like, is this Jurassic park? Like, what is this? Like, no, it's a porno. It's like an author coming to Hollywood and they're like, what sells sex. Okay. Let's start Jurassic park with sex. It's like, no, like that's not what's going to be. That dick is massive.
0: No wonder the sequels never went anywhere because they you know they had all these other books to pull from yeah and they, they probably well, they, didn't get the same executive treatment. They
1: got a young David Kep who is now a famous screenwriter yeah in his mid20s he wrote Jurassic Park and the film grossed almost a billion dollars in the 90s. I mean, he <laughs> said it was like a rocket ship taking off. Right. And he's never achieved that success in his career since. But of he's not. he's written a number of Spielberg films. He adapted War of the Worlds. He's directed films mm. in his own right, like Stir of Echoes and Premium Rush. Um, David kemp was oh responsible so it's, it's, it's for a lot of...
0: Premium Rush. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't yeah, know it's why a cute, it's I decided a cute to like film, like name premium Rush. I just. I just. I. Re, I forgot that movie existed. Yeah. You know.
1: I, I only remember it because uh, when my mom was on vacation in New York, uh, she spent time on set because it was like right around the corner from where she was staying. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah. So that was it.
0: Yeah, we watched it on Redbox. I don't know. Mm. It's just mm. one of those films. Mm. Uh, anyways, yeah. Well, boys, we are here to talk about 310 to Yuma.
1: Uh <laughs> both the original and the 2007 remake. Yeah, we have to. We have to talk about the original. original. Yeah. Delmer Dave's responsible for many great westerns, not just 310 to Yuma, but also Jubal, also starring Glenn Ford. Uh also The Hanging Tree. Um he was a great kind of I would say journeyman director, but that just so happened to have these amazing scripts under him. And he, right. he directed mm-hmm. the hell out of the original 310 of Yuma. It's, it's, yeah. it's still one of Criterion's best transfers.
0: Yeah. Even the script is like a journeyman script. I mean, El- yeah. Elmer Leonard, uh, right? Uh, it, uh, yeah. He's the original uh, short story. Like, yes. Uh, he, writer. One of the he said he did it in like a week or first something. First
1: things El- Elmore, El- Elmore Leonard wrote. Uh, he started with short Western stories. I actually right. have the collected uh, short stories of his Westerns. Um, and he then moved to crime later on when crime became the more fashionable genre but this this is a film made in the 50s so Elmore Leonard had just started writing when this was adapted right
0: yeah it's very interesting because like I just saw like a small criterion interview with him and he he was just talking about like oh, I could write in a week and make a hundred bucks and so I just kind of pump these out like, and, and <laughs> yeah. you're like man like that's really
1: just all it takes sometimes. yeah yes, it was like, 57 right stories uh, like, yes the film came out in 57 yeah. yeah.
2: So when did, when did color film become prevalent? It's had to have been like right around.
0: Uh, well, Wizard of Oz is like the first color film, but mm. um, it depends on the genre you're working in. You it know? went back
1: and forth. There's, yeah. there's an interesting interview with Lee Marvin who played uh, Liberty Valance in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance right. amongst many other great films. And and Lee Marvin said that there was a lot of resistance from both actors and directors to shoot in color because there was a certain control that you had in black and white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and there was a certain aesthetic created and they wanted to maintain that for certain genres, especially film noir. I don't think film noir benefits from being in color at all.
0: I, I think there are some really good color noirs, but Jonathan. film noir. Yeah, exactly. But, but film noir has to be, you know, you just need the shadows. You need the darkness. Like it, it all just feels like, so essential to it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, when,
1: when you're working with one color and then different variations of shade, it's a lot easier to control the image than when you're you have complete color. Yeah. Mm. That you have to really be conscious of what you're putting on screen because it yeah. can be jarring if you have yeah. the wrong color. And film noir
0: comes from like German expressionism, um, and so it's just kind of like you, you, you want these big abstract visuals to to overtake the mm. film. Really, mm. I mean that that's where the roots are.
2: Yeah, it's a it's like a literal added element, and it adds yeah. like the the you know, director and as the, you know, director of photography, now you have to add like, what is everybody wearing? You know, obviously it looks good, but what color is it? Aesthetic?
1: Yeah. That, yeah, it's definitely a For lot me, more work. I, I <laughs> really like black and white. There's something so elegant about it. And mm. especially in the time that we live in now, where we're just oversaturated with just image and color and sights and sounds, yeah, it's, it's a very, it puts me in a very specific mindset, to engaging with the past. Mm -hmm. I immediately feel like I can leave the present world and then just go back into the past when this film was made. And then when the film takes place, um, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's, it's a very specific lens with which to look backward. Uh, and I think it's important that we have black and white.
0: Um, How do you, how do you feel about like modern uses of black and white, black and white, like, uh, like Nebraska or something where it's like, it's set in the present. Yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, um, 'Cause like I, I do think like you can get that time and place effect still
1: from I, it. I think it's been used better. I think Bellatar has used black and white to his advantage uh more, more so than other filmmakers. Yeah. Well mm-hmm. that,
0: that's leaning into the, you know, the, the more you have more control with black and white, like we said, and you can create yep. abstract images in, in that way. You know, like the way that Bellatar just extends the the back of the frame you know, with black, mm. like he'll just shrink an image yeah. and it's just like, you can't, you could not get away with that in color. For me,
1: black and white feels closer to the dream state and closer to the human subconscious. I don't know how you remember your dreams, but usually my dreams are recalled in black and white. I'm not mm. recalling vivid colors when I think back on my dreams. That's
2: usually how they use black and white now in a lot of films is it's like a recall.
1: Yeah. Well, right. You use it
0: as a quick fix of like, okay, memento, we're going to do another timeline, right? Right. Like let's set that in black and white so you can differentiate it or or Oppenheimer. Maybe maybe
1: I've just been conditioned to recall my dreams that way from watching movies. Yeah. That's what, yeah. I'm like, I don't know.
0: My dreams have like maybe more muted color palettes, like Mm. as in like they're not as uh, contrast heavy, Mm. Um, but I still have color for sure. Um, I I even think like I've had dreams that like had their own color palette where I was mm. like, okay, this, this film, this movie is not this movie, this dream is in Cephia. You Your know? brain's yeah, like making yeah, up colors.
2: That's very interesting. Well,
0: like, just, for the aesthetic, you yeah, know, yeah, like, yeah. like this is the mood of the dream world, right? Yeah. Like um, this is a futuristic city where. Mm you know, like maybe the saturation isn't so full because it's kind of a depressing city. Yeah. I get it. It kind of
2: skips the process of, you know, light actually bouncing into your and through your eyes. So your brain can kind of just, you know, skip all that and create what it wants based off reference, obviously. But
0: I I mean, it's, it's a dream though. It's all the illusion of it too. It's like, it's, it's like a wireframe painting, you know, like you, you you look at it this way and it makes sense. then you turn and then it all falls
1: apart. Yeah. But I I will say the original Delmer Dave's 310 to Yuma starring Van Heflin, who had a very short lived career because he died young and also just had a very uncharacteristic look for a movie star at the time that he was acting. Yeah. And Glenn Ford, who just runs away with this film as the villain. He's so, so good. good. So cucumber. Cool. Yeah. So in control yep. of like his expression on screen, yep. it, it's pretty amazing. He's you can he's just a natural at acting. I, that's what yeah. I was
0: gonna say because I I recently saw the Big Heat with Glenn Ford, okay, which is uh, directed by Fritz Lang. I mm. think I got it up there. Um, but like Fritz Lang did M, you know, he's like a yeah. old, old school oh, yeah. cat. But um, Glenn Ford plays the the hero in mm-hmm. in in the, the Big Heat, mm. and he is also stone cold. Like he is just. Per, like stoic he, it, 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 it's it's not all stoicism though like he has energy to him but he's like infallible mm. like 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 he understands who his character is so thoroughly mm. that there's nothing the script or the world could throw at him that would shake him mm. and, and that's how i feel about his portrayal um in 310 to yuma as well like he is he, he is just so committed like in, in a way that like i just you don't see other actors yeah yeah command mm. the space like that and and really will a performance into existence. Mm-hmm. He, you know? he's
1: at once so comfortable in the life of the criminal where he he has had to compromise his morals to do what he does, but he does still live by a certain code, certainly more of a code than Russell Crowe lives by in the remake. Um, yeah, well yeah, they add yeah, a lot. Yeah, they do. It. Yeah, they do. which
0: which muddies it up. Yes. Yeah.
1: But but also there is some regret in his performance as well. Like he actually really respects Van Heflin's character. And there are moments mm-hmm. later on in the film where he has the opportunity to potentially run away. Mm-hmm. And he does, he does put up some resistance, but it's, it's almost as if he accepts his fate in the same way that Jesse James accepts his fate, that he is going to get on that train and he is going to go to Yuma. And he, yeah. he has to do that because that's what's right. He has lived outside the moral order so long and recognizes that it can't be overcome. And so he chooses to live by the moral order once again by the time the film ends. Right. He kind of resigns himself to that fate that I, he has to be punished. I, I think what this film
0: does too, like I mean, really it is just Ben Wade and Dan Evans just going at it. Morally, the entire yeah. film, yeah. stripping away, like, every level of artifice. Okay. And, and like, I, I really love how Dan Evans mm. is set up to to need money. You mm. know, that's the only reason he's really in this. Uh, yeah. he, he just gets roped in. He's an outsider. But then, as the movie goes on, even his incentive goes away mm. to, to be a hero. They're like, we'll give you the money. You don't have to see right. him all the yeah. way to the train.
1: Yep. Yes.
0: But he persists. And so, suddenly that shift makes Ben Wade have to come to terms with uh with, with Dan Evans as as an as an actual human in a character instead yeah. of just yeah. a yeah. guy who is perpetuating the system right
1: it, not only to be a hero but to reclaim his masculinity he has been emasculated by being unable to provide for his family yeah. uh, and it's a weight that he feels on his shoulders as soon as the film begins Um, now he's looking for other ways to support his family, but when this job comes along, obviously he has to take it. Yeah. Uh, but he's really kind of coming back into his own. And I think, uh, Ben Wade recognizes that and is kind of helping him along. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not just about doing the job. It's fulfilling his duty as a man. He has undertaken this obligation and he is going to see it through, through hell or high water.
0: But, but Ben Wade is definitely, challenging him and testing him yes for for the majority of this film to start he because is. you know he, he wants to see like what what will you will you
1: bend under pressure right you know? yeah um, because he's probably seen that so many times before he even predicts that uh is it butterfield mr butterfield is going to, yeah, is yeah. going to bounce. W- w- yeah, w- yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, he, he says, yeah, just yeah. wait when he gets the opportunity, he'll walk away. Yeah. And yeah. eventually he does, mm-hmm. you know, he, he says, look, you're not obligated to do this at all. I'll still pay you.
0: No, and, and, and he knows that like, exactly. Even Butterfield has a price like mm-hmm. at a point because he's like what he's defending the Southern railroad company. It's like, it's, it's fucking no one. It's an arbitrary yeah. company. You know, yeah. at some point his life is on the line. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm not, well, not messing with evil. It's the
2: same with the deputies that are gathered in uh, contention. Right, it's right, like right. They're immediately like, oh, I'm a family man. I yeah. don't need to be in this. Yeah. And you see Dan Evans, he also faces that. There's a line earlier when they're sitting by the campfire. He goes, what are you doing out here, Dan? You you got a family to take care of. What What, what are you doing this for? And really, I think the whole story is, you know, the path of an honest man versus the path of a man who takes what he wants. And you kind of see them both transform into like uh, Ben Wade becomes more of an honest man and accepts his fate to go to Yuma, whereas Dan Evans grows into the man who takes what he wants and he's already set out to take him to Yuma, so he has to be a man of his word.
1: Um, yeah that's a good point actually he, he becomes more proactive in positioning himself for success in his life exactly yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you know like that whole thing of you know tell tell
0: tell your you know tell everyone that your ma- old man was the guy who would walk Ben Wade to the station yeah you know when no one else would yeah yeah like, like that moral standing like really becomes everything for him
2: well I think they get into this more into the remake in 07 but I'm pretty sure Dan Evans character was basically demoralized in the civil war lost part of his foot or leg, got shot by his own soldier or something. And he didn't really have any glory in the war. And so now he's just this, you know, this shadow of a man who can't completely provide for his family. And the reason why he even moved out there was because his boy needed to be in the dry air because he had, I forget what disease, um, but, you know, you just see the shadow of a man who was demoralized in the war and has had well, no opportunities yeah, to top, prove himself. On top
0: of that, too, there's a bit... The movie starts with his his barn getting burned down yeah. by, by the gang. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, Because he's... The 07 bor- remake. The 07 yeah, Because yeah. He, he's borrowed money from the gang and has failed to be able to pay them back. Yeah. Which is also, like, it, as far as, like, things to add, actually, like, a... It, it, it's, it's, it's pretty solid. It's what these gangs yeah. would do. I like to, the to opening like make better a lot of money.
1: It, it lends a greater immediacy to his problem. Right. Yeah. You're like, wow, he has a week to pay these guys back. What is he going to do? Right. Yeah.
2: Well, but, I, I think the opening in the first one's better to be honest with you. I, I, I think the first one's well, better
1: the, in every way. The first one's pretty much perfect. It's yeah. like, yeah, yeah, it's
2: yeah.
0: 90 minutes long. Like every scene has, has a place. Yeah. And, and like we said, you know, it, it, you just chip away at the characters until uh, just you get the fantastic ending. But where, I, yeah, you know, yeah. it's there's a, this unexpected, you know, character growth, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that also ties the movie into yeah. a bow. And it's like that same moment happens in this film. Like, 10 minutes before the film is actually over right. and then all this other shit happens. It's yeah. like, no. a, this is just, we'll, a mess. we'll get
1: into the ending yeah. of the remake, but it's absolutely horrible. Oh, seven seven so it's just a messier film. In yeah. general. yeah, it's a, it's a messy, but film. I will it, say as they expanded the in scale.
2: my, it is a lot more realistic, meaning it's, it's more of like a history piece, whereas they're like building the actual backstory of each character. Whereas I feel like the older one was more of like a heroic journey of like Dan Evans versus...
0: I I think the old one is like the tradition of plays being films. Yeah. Where they would just be like, we have a small cast, we have very few locations, and we are going to sit with the performances and let these actors, you know, bring it. There's also
1: a greater economy of storytelling in the first one. Right. The second one gets very leaden with the way that it has to constantly provide you information and exposition about the characters. Right, Whereas on the first one, you're gleaning information on the fly through their actions which is how a story is supposed to be told. Exactly.
0: Because you are asking questions naturally that keep you interested in the film. And and like the lack of information is actually like what draws you in to start. And then once Glenn Ford is just picked up with this, crazy mad cat performance and Mm -hmm. you're, you're on board with that
1: speed uh, and he brings
0: you through the rest. I
1: like that. There's a real mystery about him that his Ben Wade is kind of unknowable. Whereas Russell Crowe is very transparent in the way he's playing his. I think Russell Crowe
0: is scary from the first scene in this film in a way that Ben Wade is not. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Which but Ben point, Wade's but, menace as played by Glenn Ford creeps up on you. And that's the, yeah, as Russell Crowe lays out all of his cards on the table right, right away. But yeah. also
0: in that same way, like we were talking about it, like when he woos the, the, sal- the saloon girl, I believed Russell Crowe's like, uh, uh, charisma a lot more than really? like well, I, I, I believe at, glenn see glenn ford like it's like that old school like i don't know i'm like like he's saying he has the the confidence but you're like does he and then, yeah and then it, it again it wins you over later but like to me like i i felt more of the menace you know than than actually like, the charisma um whereas like russell crowe's like he i'm a movie he, star russell crowe was this. more
2: creepy i feel like. Uh, what was the first guy? Was the Glenn, Glenn, Ford. Ford. Glenn Ford. Glenn Ford, I feel like he was, it's also a different time. Like picking up women in the 50s. It's very different from picking up women in 07. <laughs>
0: what do you know about picking up women in the 50s? <laughs> i know nothing about picking up women in
2: the 50s, but I can imagine it was very, I, I feel like we've developed a lot, obviously since 1950. No, I, I,
1: I, I would actually say there was more of an art of seduction back then than there is today. Yeah. Today it's like, hey, you want to fuck? Yeah. You know, like you can't say that back then. You have to comment on her pretty eyes. like, like oh, Her green I, eyes. I want to, Yeah, I want to see like the the depth of your emerald green eyes, yeah. which is brown eyes. Like, well, brown eyes are okay too.
2: Yeah, well, it, and if you did have the ability to speak well and you had a silver tongue, it was like a big thing then. Because even like uh, Dick Little in uh, Jesse James, he was just good at talking. That's why he wooed over women. Dick Dick
1: Little had all the best lines in Jesse James. Like that that scene where he's seducing Jesse James's cousin's sister. Yes, was incredible. I I believed every moment of that. Yeah, yeah, I was like, like, this girl better fuck him. Like she would be an idiot not to. (laughs) Yeah, like this guy is just he literally rode up to your house. (laughs) Right. Yeah, Yeah. gotta take that man. But speaking of seduction. There's a really interesting scene that's fascinating that it made it into a, a film that was made in the fifties where Van Heflin has to take Glenn Ford into his house that they can pull the bait and switch to make it seem like he's still in the carriage. Right. And he has dinner with his family that his wife has prepared. And in front of Van Heflin, Glenn Ford immediately starts seducing his wife Yeah, oh, and, yeah. and asked, and, and the, the remake is slightly different in the original. She's from San Francisco and he yeah, says exactly. that he, he's been to San Francisco and yeah, had a relationship yeah. with the daughter of a sailor. Right. Um, but he does it all in front of Van Heflin. He just sits down and starts seducing his wife in front which, of the man.
0: Which again, that's part of the the, the test of character, yeah. right? Yeah. He's like, you know, what What are you going to do when I go after your family right. and, and your and, wife?
1: Like, and yeah. not only that, but she starts falling for him. Oh yeah. Because it's way, yeah. He has that masculinity that her husband lacks because her husband has not been able to step up into the role of provider. Yeah. And,
0: well, yeah, and, like, whether or not she would do anything with no, it. No, she its doesn't do anything. But she is intrigued because this energy has entered yeah. that yes. hasn't been there for a minute, yes. right? Yes. And, 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 yeah, you're right. She falls way harder in the original. In the original, in the original. Than she yeah. does in the sequel. Oh, her eyes the, are the absolutely
1: sparkling as yeah. he's yeah. talking to her. And Ben Heflin has to pull her aside and is like, don't do that. Yeah, right. like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, yeah. It feels like
2: the the new one. It's more sneaky. Like mm-hmm. as he walks out, he it, starts doing. It feels it. like
0: yeah, we're like oh, you like wait, yeah. like yeah, yeah, we're doing yeah, yeah. that. No, yeah, there's
1: yeah. like there's, real, like, there's real the real danger, danger in yep. the original
2: yep. Yep. that, yeah, hey, that yeah. he's gonna
1: snatch his wife.
2: Yeah, no, yeah. It, you buy it a lot more, and he, you know he's a good looking cat. And then you have you know Dan Evans' character. Um, what's his name as well?
1: Uh well Christian Bale, Christian Bale, plays Bale plays no Dan, in plays the Dan. original oh Van Heflin
2: he's not as you know aesthetic he's not he's kind of like a more grimy looking oh man. yeah
1: yeah he's not a movie star no. he uh, doesn't have movie star caliber looks yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. but that's like we,
0: they used to cast people that didn't look like movie stars yeah. in movies you know mm-hmm. and like they I actually Christian Bale to his effort you know really is not in. It, it, like, he's looked a lot better, right? He's, oh, yeah. He's been he has himself psycho, down, right? sure. Yeah, like, yeah. He's, he's got scraggly hair, yep. the, the leg, obviously, you know. Yep. Like, he, he knows how to, like, give himself smaller mannerisms as, mm-hmm. a, as a person. Yeah. And, and he does a good performance, too, in this film. Um, it's, it's, just, it's very serviceable. That, that's exactly how <laughs> I felt.
1: Yeah. But in contrast to Jesse James, which feels like it's totally authentic to the time, 310 to Yuma just feels like adults playing dress-up even though it has great sets and it looks like they spent a lot of money on it. There's just something that James Mangold fails to find with the film. Yeah, mm. It just feels like a costume party.
0: Well, and I think like it's, it's a lot of these scenes that are recreated where it feels like he has to add more. Like, yes. you know, the, the opening scene yep. is like the epitome of this, where it's just like, let's start the film with a huge action scene because yeah. that's what we expect because it's 2007 you know, and it's not
1: it's not the '50s, but right. yeah,
0: that so that kind of takes away. Speaking of the bit. Chinese
1: building the railroad yeah. through the Sierra Nevadas, there's a, ch- a totally unnecessary chase scene. Oh, right, that yeah. is just inserted, in inserted into film. the yeah. film right. for yeah. no reason. Where there, the the brother of a uh, one of Russell Crowe's victims. Uh, just so happens to see him enter their encampment, like yeah. from far away. He's like, "Oh, that's Ben Wade." It's like, "How do you know?" Yeah. And he gets him and starts electrocuting him. And yeah. They have to, re- they have to recapture him. him, free yes. so that they can capture I, and him. And then they blow up the entire tunnel. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. It makes no sense. I, it's, honestly, the, it's the worst scene in the movie. Right. And you're
0: far. like, why? Like Ben Wade would not be in. Or, sorry, Ben Wade would be into it. Dan Evans would not be into this. Yeah. Right? No. You know, like, no. Not
1: yeah. at all.
2: What well, kind of takes away from Dan Evans because he escapes twice in the new one. He right. gets yes. away from them twice. Yep. So it kind of takes away from like, cause he basically comes back the second time. I'm pretty sure. Oh no. The second time is when he got captured the first time. He basically just comes back
1: to him. Yeah. Well, and technically he escapes too at the end, but then decides not to. Escape. Yeah. <laughs> and
2: we're not yeah. going to get it. Cause Literally.
1: I, yeah, I do not uh, like that. I did like that. He killed a guy with a dinner fork, uh, stabbed him. That was sick. I, I like that. Even, Even that though the reveal scene. wasn't great. Like James Mingle just chooses all of the wrong uh shots to show the violence in this film yeah it just doesn't land well, with any it, kind of dramatic emphasis and that's what i
0: loved about the originals like how they would just stick the camera in a spot and let a
1: lot of the the action unfold it, it, through it, the it adds weight you know? to the action yeah, yeah. whereas this you, because this was made in 07 right after james uh, and right after uh born um and you see a lot of shaky cam going on in movies at this time for no apparent reason. Yeah. And it's like, dude, just have your shots selected and set up great blocking with your actors and you'll get what you need. Mm -hmm. You don't have to just like wiggle the camera to make it look like something's happening. I
0: think I, I agree too though, but it's also like in that ending, like, there's, there's a part where they like start running across roofs and like jumping from building to building. And it's just like, there's, they just like, I think they, they got worried that they were like, we're spending this amount of money. Yeah. Like we've got to just clean this up a mm-hmm, bit and mm-hmm. like make it a little more generic. It's just, yeah. it takes a lot of the character out of, of the actual film. There have yeah. been
1: some big Western bombs prior to this coming out. Um, well, it, it, really starting in the 90s. You have something like Wild Wild West, which is supposed right. to be a huge Will Smith Wild action Wild vehicle West. that bombed. Uh, Kevin Costner directed a film called Open Range in 2004 that was made for $80 million and yeah. didn't gross anywhere close to that. Mm. It's actually a better film than this uh, to more traditional Western with an amazing shootout at the end, but it's three hours long and audiences didn't really take to right. it. Um, yeah, yeah. And so I would say uh, this leaned more toward action. Th- this is really an action film more than it is a Western. Definitely it has characters that are dressed like cowboys, but it doesn't have the same iconography and style that defined a lot of older. I would
0: compare it a lot more to Sam Raimi's the quick and the dead. Yes. Which Russell Um, Crowe also stars in. Right. Mm -hmm. Because like, that's, it's just a lot more fun and light with the action Mm -hmm. and and the comedy. I mean, like sure. There's like a sheriff versus an outlaw. Oh yeah. You know, but like, it's also, not really about that too much. And you know, the, the plot resolves itself pretty easily. It's, it's, it just feels like a light version of a Western, right? The the type of like movies we make nowadays where it's like, uh, it's a Western, but you're just gesturing to it. You know, it's like a, like a Marvel movie where you're like, Oh, this one's a, it's like a spy thriller, but it's, it's not really, that can
1: work. Uh, Richard Donner made a film in 93 with Mel Gibson and Jodie Foster called Maverick. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a Western comedy where Mel Gibson plays a card sharp and he's working mm-hmm. his way up to a poker tournament. It's one of the most entertaining films ever made. Really? It's absolutely hilarious. It's Gibson in his prime when he was just a force to be reckoned with as a movie star. I laughed my ass off from beginning to end. It's like a PG film. It's an all ages film. That's and It's one of the most fun films ever. I, I really wish we could have more films. Is like like it like
0: slapsticky? Yeah, of, it's or? it's based
1: on Maverick, the old Western TV show from the 60s. Okay. Um, and that star actually appears in the film as well, playing Mel Gibson's father. I he's, he's actually a big star in his own right. And I can't recall his name at the moment, but yeah, I, I believe that's on my, my list of best Westerns ever made is, is Maverick. Uh, one of my favorite Richard Donner films up there with the omen, um, is I think in lethal weapons, one of the best things he ever made.
0: What, What else you got, uh, rocking on your best Western list here?
1: Uh, I have some obvious staples at the top. Uh, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. Yes, There's a lot of Incredible. Leone films that you could put in the number one slot. Mm-hmm. I think for a few dollars more is acceptable. Mm-hmm. The Good, the Bad, the Ugly is acceptable. Uh, but Once Upon a Time in the West really is the apotheosis of his fairy tale like rendering of the West. And he really invented his own cinematic language that then began to influence American Westerns coming from the Spaghetti West in Italy. Um, but Once Upon a Time in the West is the most epic rendering of a simple story I've ever seen. It's incredible. It takes a story that could have been told in 70 minutes and stretches it to three hours right. mm-hmm. and really, really lingers in those moments. Um, but it it just has a beauty that is so unique.
0: Well, I think that you that just, you have your own special effect in Ennio Morricone's, you know, incredible score. Mm. But then also, you know, he wrote all that music before they filmed yeah, which is amazing. Yeah. So then they were able so the to, film has to fit it the into, music. Yeah. yeah. which just like, I feel like really let it transcend. Yeah.
1: It's actually the first film where I started to appreciate Charles Bronson as an actor. Uh, it took me a while to come around to guys like John Wayne and Charles Bronson. I did not understand their appeal for so long because they were simply not good actors. Right. But the, the, the directors that understood their screen presence really took advantage of that. And Leone does with Bronson and it was Bronson was not supposed to be the star of once upon a time in the West. It was supposed to be Clint Eastwood, mm. but mm. Clint Eastwood had already gotten big from doing the original three movies with Leone right. and started to use his clout in Hollywood. And he instead chose to make hang them high instead of once upon a time in the West, which I'm sure he regrets now. Ha- hang them high is a fine movie about a hanging judge. And it's a lot of fun. It's,
0: it's kind of like he didn't realize how good he had it. He did. Cause he, he should have held on you know, made that a director actor pairing for, you know, decades and then just moved on.
1: And he smartly uses Henry Fonda in one of the few villainous roles that he played, uh, because audiences had only ever known Henry Fonda as a hero. And so when he appears on screen in his first scene in once upon a time in the West and shoots a small child in the face, you're like, Whoa, (laughs) like this is not the Henry Fonda. I know (laughs) like the movie immediately feels dangerous. Um, and he only shoots the small child because one of his posse members accidentally said his real name, and one of his rules is if anyone hears my name, they're dead. Even if it's mm. a, even if it's a ten year old. Uh, so it's it's. But the film is not a grim, violent movie. It's it's. It really doesn't get into the ugliness of the West in a way that I, I would think like James Mangold does in Three Ten of Yuma, where it feels violent for no reason. The film didn't need to be as violent as it was. No. Uh, Once upon a time in the West it's reckoning with the changes that are happening in the West, the encroach of technology. The villain is basically is, isn't Henry Fonda, but the man he's working for, who's a railroad baron, who is establishing a new sort of order in the West. That's going to Trump the traditional good versus evil sheriff ruling over his own domicile. Uh, and he kind of lives by his own set of rules, which he's like this and he sits in his railroad car, the whole movie, almost like a King would on his throne. Um, but the the film just has this epic quality. I mean, you don't realize how many films were influenced by this one movie. Right. So for me, that's my favorite Western of all time. Uh, some other notable Westerns I'll talk about are John Ford's, the man who shot Liberty Valance, which is just a beautiful film. I don't know if you guys have seen Mm-mm.
0: it. You've told me about it. I, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I really it could
1: be my number one on other days. Um, it's John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart, mm-hmm. Jimmy Stewart, my favorite actor of all time uh, as he's getting older and he's, He's playing a, a man named Ransom who wants to be a lawyer in the Old West and he's trying to do everything by the book and he's having a tough time in life. So he's literally a waiter at a restaurant in the Old West and, and he's, John Wayne is kind of like the figure that he wants to be. Uh, and there's a man named Liberty Valance that's terrorizing the town and Jimmy Stewart realizes is that he's the man that has to step up to kill Liberty Valance, but he doesn't know if he has the metal to do it. And John Wayne in his own way kind of shows him how to do it and how to become the man that can take down this, this, this villain. But like the film is more complicated than that. It's really interesting the way that it plays with both Jimmy Stewart stardom and John Wayne stardom. I don't want to say any more than that because the power of the film actually rests on a twist that you learn yeah. later on. I think I've heard of the twist okay. from someone okay. else, but yeah. I, but also I, I for didn't the viewer for
0: the for the listeners, you know, same I, same deal. I,
1: I didn't know it was coming, so it had a profound impact. That's on the
0: me. that's the way to go. I mean, I, if if you can just if you're interested in a film, you know, go in to it with yeah. knowing the the least you can. Yeah. You know, because yeah. because you you can always become the master on it mm-hmm. in, in the. In future, you know,
1: um, but that and first I, experience actually Jimmy Stewart was in a lot of Westerns following world war II. He actually left Hollywood to go fight in the war in the air force and came back. And it's pretty amazing. So I've seen films that he was in before the war, like Mr. Smith goes to Washington and yeah. De- Destry rides again. Destry rides again is a Western. It's a comic Western that criterion put out three years ago, really worth looking into. Uh, it's my number 11 of all time. Uh, but when he comes back from the war, there is something that is haunted on Jimmy Stewart's face. He is not the same man that he was before. You can tell that he's seen things, that he's grown. He has more lines on his face, he looks more weary. And he came back and he partnered with Anthony Mann on five westerns that are amongst the best westerns ever made. And they're the best, some of the best performances of Jimmy Stewart's career. They started with Winchester 73 which is an amazing film. They moved into Bend of the River to Naked Spur to the Far Country, which is an Alaska set Western, which is really cool. And they culminated in the best uh, film that they ever made together in the darkest film of Jimmy Stewart's career called The Man from Laramie. The Man from Laramie plays out as this Shakespearean tragedy about a conspiracy. uh, Somebody is selling repeating, uh, repeating, repeating rifles, which were new at that time to the Indians um, and the uh, to, specifically to the Apaches. Right. And the Apaches are using them to attack the people in this Western town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it the conspiracy continues to mm-hmm. unravel as the film unfolds and it may implicate this well-to-do family and the son of this land baron that he has to kind of take down. It's, it's a really fascinating mm-hmm. film it's Jimmy Stewart at his angriest. He's just like snarling and yelling the whole movie. And he actually told Anthony Mann because they were supposed to collaborate on one more Western together called night passage that didn't end up happening because Jimmy Stewart was like, I don't want to play this darkness anymore. I want to move into more audience friendly stuff. And Jimmy Stewart played the accordion in real life. And he wanted a role to show off his accordion skills. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Totally true. (laughs) And Anthony Mann was like, this is ridiculous. You don't need an accordion. I want to keep making dark movies. Movies, and so they parted ways and never spoke again mm. jimmy stewart has always been this kind of affable affable figure but when he's gotten into feuds with people they've really like become pretty severe and he's right. never talked to those people ever again mm. he even didn't talk to his wife a week after his horse pie who he used to shoot all these westerns died he wow. was so connected to that horse that he wouldn't speak to his wife a week. <laughs> <laughs> That's nutty. I learned all this. uh, Arrow put out the far country on uh, Blu-ray and I picked it up and watched all the special features. And I I learned all this from watching that.
0: I mean, he's a true cowboy. His number one girl was his horse. Yep. That's my girl. Um, That's my girl.
1: Another great Western called The Great Silence. Uh, from Sergio Corbucci, as -hmm. Tarantino would say in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the second best Italian filmmaker behind Sergio Leone. He's the man. Sergio Corbucci made a number of Westerns, including The Mercenary, which appears in Once Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as a marquee in uh, the Bruin Theater. Mm. Uh, He also made Navajo Joe, where uh, Burt Reynolds plays a Navajo Indian. Mm -hmm. He also made The Great Silence, which is a snowy Western, which heavily influenced The Hateful Eight Eight,
2: eight, that
1: stars Klaus Kinski as the villain. I don't know who plays the lead because he wasn't in a ton of movies, but Klaus Kinski is the villain and it's a brutal Western with the bleakest ending that's ever been put into a Western ever. It's just, the movie ends on such a mean spirited sour note. I actually couldn't (laughs) believe it, Uh, but it's beautifully shot uh, and it's a must see violence. Um, There's another Western called the life and times of judge Roy Bean, which is a comic Western. It's a all ages PG Western starring Paul Newman. It was written by, um, John Milius. It was supposed to star Lee, Lee Marvin. Uh, Paul Newman wanted the role. So he went to Lee Marvin's house in Malibu and got him all liquored up and convinced him that he wasn't right for the role. And Lee (laughs) Marvin goes, yeah, you're right. I didn't really want to play this anyway. And then just gave the role to Paul Newman. So that's how Paul Newman got that. role. (laughs) Paul Newman was a big drinker in his own right. He drank a six pack a day his whole adult life until the day he died. Um, But it's a really funny movie about a hanging judge in a frontier town. And he just ends up killing people willy nilly. But it's, it's kind of, it's a almost like kind of like a, just this Daffy duck look at this guy in the old West. It's like a live action cartoon Mm. uh, that was written in the seventies. It's a really fascinating film in its execution. I think it's well worth looking into. The last one I'll mention on here is called The White Buffalo. Uh, The White Buffalo stars stars Charles Bronson. It's about this giant mythic white buffalo that is terrorizing um, this town in the Old West uh, and the Native Americans have not been able to control it. Um, So it's, it's wreaking havoc on both people, on cowboys and the Native Americans in that time. And Charles Bronson has to be the guy to come out and take out this white buffalo. It was directed by um, uh, Jay Lee Thompson, who directed a number of Charles Bronson films, including the epic film 10 to Midnight, which is one of the best slasher films ever made. Also a Canon film. Uh, but there's all practical effects for this Buffalo. They got, they had a giant white animatronic Buffalo. So it's kind of like a mm. monster movie set in the old West. Yeah. And it's just awesome.
0: That's sick. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's like killing people. Like, it's killing uh, people. Yeah,
1: yeah. 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 And then whenever, whenever it like comes stampeding into a scene, like all the rocks start <laughs> to fall from the mountains and everything. And it's like, it has like a real scope to it. Like these, these genre movies back then were given a lot more resources than movies are oh, today. Yeah, sure. mm-hmm. um, and it, it, it just looks beautiful. The thing with J. Lee Thompson is that he was a sleazy director, but he, man, his films look good. Uh, people will know him from his classier pictures like Cape fear. And, um, Uh, He directed a war film, Guns on the something. Uh, But then most of his the latter half of his career was Charles Bronson collaborations. Bronson basically didn't want to work with anybody else. So he directed some of the later Death Wish movies. He directed uh, 10 to Midnight, which is one of my favorites. He directed Murphy's Law. uh, All these sleazy Bronson vehicles, but they're so fun. He directed actually a really interesting slasher That is basically like six short stories culminating in the deaths of six people called "Happy Birthday to Me." Indicator put it out. It's very well worth looking into. Okay, Mm. Uh, slashers are something I'm very passionate about. We can get into it at any time. I've 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 seen hundreds of them. Slasher.
0: There's always you know like you can always think of another way to kill someone. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's all
1: it comes down to, really.
0: Um, yeah, I,
1: I wanted to talk about
0: James Mangold for a
1: little bit. Yeah, um, he's, in, he's had a really fascinating career. Yeah. Um, do you have his career pulled up in order? I, I Let me do it right here. I just want to make sure that Copland is, in fact, his first film. Um, I believe it is, because he did a... Yeah, it, there's Heavy before that, actually. Oh, you're right. Okay, yeah. okay. So James Mangold's kind of interesting, where... He was a film school guy. He was very talented in film school. He got a deal fresh out of school at 21 in Hollywood. And he came out here and completely squandered it. He completely spent all of his money and partied and uh, didn't do anything. And he had to do
0: when you're 21. He had to go back home with his
1: tail between his legs and basically become a hermit write a bunch of stuff and then come back to Hollywood. And he actually did it. He actually was able to make that transition back after burning bridges originally,
0: which doesn't, which
1: almost never happens. Almost never happens. So it's, it's, it's amazing that he's, he got to a position to make movies. Yeah.
0: Also to not have the work ethic and then to, to be like, okay, I got to have it now. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've heard that
1: story from a few people. I have a screenwriter friend who sold a movie when he was very young for like 150 grand, which seemed like an astronomical sum, but then right. he pissed it all away over the course of two years following. And then it was like another 10 years before he sold another script. Insane. Uh, so you have to be careful with that early success. You have yeah. to yeah. cultivate it and make sure you're making the right decisions. That's why they
0: talk about like your sophomore, you know, the sophomore slump, you know, like, like or just hitting that second project because it's, it's much more important than the first. Yeah, yeah. You know? uh,
1: James Wan talks about that in the wake of Saw. Him and Lee Whannell achieved so much success after Saw that he basically almost buried his career with the two films that followed, which were Dead Silence and Death Sentence, which are two movies nobody knows anything about. Dead, Dead, <laughs> Dead Silence say, is a yeah. puppet horror movie. Uh, I saw it opening weekend. I was the only person interested in seeing that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Death Sentence, I You're skipped. You're like, it was
0: a slasher or something, Yeah,
1: man. yeah. Uh, and then James Wan had to come back and make Insidious for 900 grand and basically prove himself all over again. And then that film made $100 million right. on mm. a $900,000 budget. Wow. So And that, that basically... Gave him the juice he needed to yeah. start his career anew. Like, because
0: so Mangold is coming off of Walk the Line, which feels oh, yeah. like a, like. I mean, it was a huge hit Oscar player, obviously. Yeah, I, I I'm wondering if that's like if 310 to Yuma was him just trying to like rank up a little bit you know because I, I
1: i would say 310 is probably a movie he wanted to make uh mangold has always had an interest in westerns and westerns have well, never been fashionable for as long as i've been in town yeah. for as long as i've been watching movies so I, I feel like that was one for him because walk the line was so successful uh walk right. the line, a, a,
0: a one for him that he could still get made and, and funded yes in because the West it is westerns IP, making- because it is a
1: remake yeah. if it was an original western they probably wouldn't have greenlit it yeah Um,
0: I, I think I agree with you. That makes sense.
1: He is a very good journeyman director. I would say Copland is the only film that feels like the work of an auteur. It's a truly great film. Yeah. Well, Sylvester Stallone gained something like 45 pounds for the role. Um and makes himself into a huge loser. I I think it's the lowest I've ever seen Stallone appear on screen, where he's just being overshadowed by guys like Harvey Keitel and Ray Liotta and Robert De Niro, and he allows himself to be at the corner of the screen and not at the focal point. Mm -hmm. Um, it's it's a really it's a performance of an actor who knows how to be humble in the presence of other great actors, and it helps that he's the lesser actor amongst great actors as well. Yeah. Stallone really is more of a movie star persona than he is a thespian and he's in a room full of thespians. Mm. So that actually works to the advantage Mm -hmm. of the story and his character on screen, but it culminates in this awesome shootout of an ending uh, that's beautifully filmed and filmed in such a way with the soundscape, the way it is, I won't reveal why, but Mangold smartly uses sound at the end to, to, underscore the dramatic impact of every gunfire.
0: That's great. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like, I, I think he's a good filmmaker, like from the technical aspects of everything. I thought Ford v Ferrari is probably his best of like his, his new releases. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's very much like a, a dad film, you know, just like, it's an easy watch. Like I put it on with my, my whole family and they all loved it. You know? Um, and, like, actually, like, the the car chase, car chase, if you will, the, the race sequences, like, he, he does some good blocking and action yeah. in it. But I also saw Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny this year, and I thought it was really muddled in a lot of the action because they, they had to hide Harrison Ford for so much of yeah. the film yeah. and kind of shoot around him that, like, it, coming to see this 310 to Yuma, I, I felt like I was, I was also seeing where, okay, I, you know the action can get away from Mangold a little bit. It,
1: it does. He has a very hard time um, orienting the viewer in the midst of the action. It right. feels very choppy. He doesn't have a good sense of spatial awareness on no, screen it, when the in the midst of the, the action.
0: S- the spatial awareness was the biggest thing too for me, especially in that opening scene because they're chasing this uh, wagon that they're you know trying to, mm-hmm. to to rob, and it's got a Gatling gun at the back mm-hmm. of it, and they're basically in this huge. Valley that's got mm-hmm. a divot in it, and it almost just feels like they're racing
1: around the toilet bowl the whole time.
0: Like, you're just like,
1: What's going on? I, what I, direction I, are I they I wasn't even like, aware yeah. that both parties were coming at each other at first. That's yeah. what I'm yeah. saying. I thought it was a chase, in the back, like, yeah. and so I'm like, Oh, they must be coming from behind because they're going to shoot them with a Gatling gun. Right. He doesn't communicate information to the viewer well at all no. No. throughout the whole course of the movie, and that
0: was the big problem with like honestly with Indiana Jones because Steven Spielberg is one of the best action, you know, directors ever. He knows where to put the camera. So like, you know, when you're watching a chase scene not directed by by Spielberg, you're just going to be like, okay, yeah, I I know there's better.
1: Even in that moment where I believe it's the Apaches make a brief appearance in 310 to Yuma. Yes, mm -hmm. they do, they do. And he shoots them so close that you don't even get a good bearing on what they look like. Mm-hmm. Like the, it's like the camera is right up on them. I'm like, yeah. why aren't you showing them from a distance? Like they, they would be attacking from a distance. It makes right. it just makes no sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Although I, was I kind think of Logan, he was in the pocket for with with most of the action in that film because mm. he was shooting a lot more of the honestly a lot more of that that um, uh, Jason Bourne. Shaky cam close to to Logan, uh, yeah, stuff. But it, it was just because like they they it, it just felt raw because you're watching it all from one character's perspective a little more. um I don't think they had car chases in Logan, really. There was no. a little bit of that, but not, yeah, yeah, um, no. And, and what he brought to that was more the the western genre. He was like, let's mm-hmm. let's make this this superhero a fading icon, you know, like he's. he's the world has moved beyond him, right? He's not as powerful as he once was. Like they, he, he brought a, a, a good sensibility to that story, but mm. I, I also get why. Like, what the Wolverine he made that before that was like, Oof. yeah, exactly. Like that that was a movie that that's
1: supposed to be an Aronofsky vehicle, actually.
0: Wow, that's crazy. <clears throat> but yeah. like, it's it, he's like doing samurai fights and all this, and I think it's like it's just very choppy um, uh, uh, as yeah. far as like action goes as well, and that that wasn't very well received.
1: I will say, mm. looking at this list, I forgot he made Identity. Yeah, which is strange because that's not the type of film one person makes after a classy picture like Girl Interrupted. <laughs> you know? it's yeah, like yeah. what? Why? And Kate and, and Leopold. Kate Leopold he, is so wild. It, yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't actually say he's a a chameleon like some other directors. I think he's more of a journeyman. I, he's like just a journeyman. He's he, like, they just, just bring him on he's because literally,
0: like, I want to work this year. He's going
1: to deliver a very durable yeah. product.
0: And mm. I know, yeah, he's going to make. He's apparently making a Star Wars movie, but.
1: Yeah, who cares? That's yeah, exactly. Who cares? I, <laughs> literally, at this point, man, it's, it's they've insane. driven Star Wars into the ground. They yeah. I, I've never been a fan. I grew up in a film watching household. Uh, my dad has been a film fanatic his whole life, but he hates fantasy, and so he never showed us Star Wars <laughs> ever. Yeah, yeah. ever. Like, mm-hmm. and, and I've still. And I had a professor in college say, "You know what? If you made it this far in your life and you haven't seen it, there's really no use in watching it now because yeah. it's not going to have the same impact."
0: I, I feel that. I feel like the original trilogy, sure. Like you know, just check them out. But also, you're you're living your life without it, man. You're, yeah, you're yeah, So much yeah. better. I, I, I was already that. on yeah.
1: Kubrick. Like he yeah. showed me eyes wide shut when I was ten. Right. Because uh, right. he's like, hey, you gotta <laughs> yeah. see, you gotta see this movie. You yeah. know, it's, it's about how the elite yeah. run the world. It's <laughs> Like you can you can watch THX
0: one one three eight and be like, cool. George Lucas can do this sick world building. You know, like you get you could get aspects of that from other things. Yeah. you Yeah. Know? Yeah. Which.
1: I, I don't I'm not sure if kids are the same way today, but when I was a kid, I only wanted to see the adult movies. Like I begged oh, to go see Braveheart absolutely. in theaters when yeah. I was a kid. Cause that was yeah. a cool thing to see. Or, the, or
0: the, like if my parents said I couldn't watch something like yeah. it made me want to like sneak downstairs yes. and like get a look you or know? every
1: Arnold Schwarzenegger movie because he was making movies like eraser uh, and uh, end of days in the nineties, mm-hmm. you know, which were like super popular films amongst small kids like, who are obsessed with the Terminator. Right. Like you, you had to go see the latest Arnold movie. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, for me, I was
2: youngest of like seven. So I was like, I could watch whatever the fuck I wanted, honestly, because they would be watching things anyway. So it was like, there was no filter for me. I was watching all kinds of crazy horrors and shit when I was young, having nightmares for weeks. They didn't give a fuck.
0: Yeah. Know. Dan did, did, I, I, did you see either of these in theaters? Cause you're, I, I yeah, like I was basically like 11, 12. Okay. Like in yeah, I was a freshman. So. I was a freshman
1: in college. I didn't see three 10 Yuma in theaters because I had already kind of seen enough films by that point to know that Mangold was not an auteur. And yeah. so I wasn't interested. I love it. Uh, Jesse James only played in limited release and right. I was in Syracuse, which had no access to independent films. Yeah. Mm. So I had to wait two months until it hit DVD to then rent it from Netflix as a DVD that was mailed to my dorm room. Wow. And then Mm. I watched it on my laptop on that DVD for the first time. Mm-hmm. And we're still blown away. I'm I, sure. I, I watched it on like a 21 inch MacBook Pro. Well, in I, 07. Yeah. I mean,
0: we, we talk about like how much format matters, but it's like you just got to see the thing. You do. At, at, at the first, you know, step. I, and like I, I got to see this on 35 millimeter at the new Bev last year. And that was an incredible experience, right? Like yeah. being locked in with, with a black screen, all or, you know, black void all around you. It, it, it makes I, a big difference. But I also loved it on the couch. Yeah. This yeah. Time, you know, yeah. like it, it's yeah, still, it's beautiful. still hit. Like
1: there's yeah. some things. Uh, so like the wild bunch is a film that took me multiple viewings in order to get around to loving, which I now love. And I recently had the opportunity to see yeah, it. On the I big liked it. I feel, Egyptian. I feel the same way
0: that I, I need a, I need a, I'll, I'll love it in 10 years. Seeing on a big screen
1: know? at the Egyptian was an experience. And yeah. they, there were like people, industry people there like people that love this film right it was a sold out show i counted only five people that got up to use the restroom for the entire duration of the film and it's two and a half hours mm-hmm. and it's interesting so we we assume that films are like more violent and sexual and gratuitous now than they were then but i often find when i watch movies especially from the 70s wild bunch was made in 69 but it's basically a 70s film that they were in many ways more violent and gratuitous than we have today. I agree, especially in portrayal of rape, because every movie at that time used rape, if not as a catalyst for a movie, right. then just as a moment of catharsis <gasps> or as a moment to shock people. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking Death Wish two in particular with Charles Bronson as one of the most vicious rapes I've ever seen. Mm. Uh, Vinegar Syndrome just put it out if anyone's interested in seeing it. But I mean, um, see all those. But no, I, I, I'm I, I'm continually shocked by films. During that era, than I am of films today. Yeah,
0: I, 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 same way. I mean, I like it's, it's always like, it always happens like in such a blase moment too, where it's Mm. like they just throw this like, you know, it. You'll see something where like they're talking about trans characters in a certain way, and you're like, oh yeah, the culture was a whole different place there, right? Right. Like you just, you just wouldn't say anything in the same way now. No,
1: no, no. Somebody like Sam Peckinpah would not be working at all in Hollywood today. Uh, The the closest person that I would compare to him because he's so much informed by Sam Peckinpah and Don Siegel is S. Craig Zoller, who has a Western on my list as well called bone Tomahawk. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a Western that was made for 1.8 million. It grossed over 20, mostly on VOD stars. Kurt Russell is just an incredible film, uh, especially in the character work and the dialogue. I would say second to Jesse James, it has probably the most authentic Western dialogue I've seen in a film. Where S. Craig Zahler is an avowed fan of old Western pulps from guys like Harry Whittington and has read them all and just has this encyclopedic knowledge of how people spoke during that time period. Uh, And you really see that conveyed through the characters on screen. But he's also a person that portrays violence in mostly medium and long shots. So he captures everything. And the violence lands with a greater brutality when it's not all chopped up and edited. When you actually see things unfolding between two people, you really feel the impact of bone on bone. Uh, He made a film after that, a a prison brawler called brawl and cell block 99. And then a crooked cop movie with Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn called dragged across concrete. All three. I'm, I'm, I would highly recommend. I'm a huge fan of, he's like the premier genre mashup artist of our time. Nice. And and understands movie violence in a way that most modern directors do not.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's got to feel visceral, you know? Um, I feel like, especially, modern audiences are just used to so much. Yes. And
1: and they don't see violence anymore with practical effects or with squibs and fake blood. Right. They're cartoonish. John Wick paved the way for CGI blood, which nothing makes my blood boil more than seeing CGI blood on screen. Mm. It really pisses me off. I'm at I I I've already told people Matt I'm, I'm at the point where if I see CGI in a movie trailer I just won't go to see the film but if I know it has CGI blood I'll just avoid it as well. Oh, you, well. I think I believe you need to see fake blood splashing around the set on top of the performers. Yeah. yeah. It makes a difference. Like by the mm. end of the 310 well, remake
0: alone, you know, like when the actor recoils after getting hit with blood. Yeah, yeah. like Oh yeah, if you're doing it with CGI, they're, uh, there there's they're a not moment there. in yeah. Lynn Ramsey's
1: uh, sex trafficking thriller. You were never really here with Joaquin Phoenix, yeah, where he gets splashed right on the face with really dark blood after a guy's been shot in the head in front of him. Right. And man, do you feel that? It gets you see it on his lips, you see it in his eye. You know, you can't achieve that effect with fake blood. Mm-hmm. You need to have the the performer being splashed.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, but uh, and, and you see that in Christian Bale's face at the end of the Three Ten to Yuma remake during the shootout that transpires in front of the train that he's trying to put Russell Crowe on, you can see all the cuts and nicks and everything. and, And you, you really can feel the journey that the character has been on bringing him to this moment. The fool's journey. And, And and then that's immediately robbed from him because he's killed in unceremonious fashion as he's getting Russell Crowe onto the train car. It reminds me of the Cold Mountain adaptation that Anthony Minghella made in 2003. Now, Cold Mountain was a huge runaway success. It was a World War II fiction um, that was written in the late 90s. Everyone's mom had a copy of Cold Mountain on their coffee table. Mm -hmm. It was like the Oprah Winfrey Book Club book. And Jude Law, his character in the book is reconnected with Nicole Kidman's character after being away during the war for so long and it's a happy ending. In the Cold Mountain remake, he comes back, they have sex, they reconnect, and then he's killed immediately the next day. And everyone's like, What is this? Like, (laughs) (laughs) we just watched this whole movie trying to reunite these two people and he's just killed. Yeah. And that's how I felt watching the Three Tender Yuma remake. I was like, We've been on this whole journey with this character only to have him die so that his son of a bitch of a son, played by Logan Lerman, can finally tell his dad that he loves him. Yeah. (laughs) Like, his his son is outright abusive to him throughout the whole movie. I was like, Oh, yeah. I was like, They're hitting this way too hard with the son not respecting his father. Yeah,
0: I I actually I like at the beginning I was on board with the the addition of the son character. Yeah, at the very beginning I was him him a little further um, it, but I agree. What they end up doing, his, his son really is do. so mean to him.
1: Okay. I, yeah, like I'll never become the man like you are. And all well, this stuff exactly. And like, I, like
0: it, it's almost like it takes away some of the nobility yes. of Christian Bale's yes. decisions because you're like, well, his son really fucking. Yeah, hates he's doing. It. Mis- he's like mis- he doesn't want to go back to that kid. Yeah, he's like, doing yeah, this for the, 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 this
2: piece his, of shit yeah, son. Exactly. I do like the son better than the wife appearing out of nowhere in the first movie.
0: I, that's what I was thinking. Oh, yeah, it like, right, like right. works better as a emotional pull. It works yes. better. But but then that, yeah, what they But then,
2: I wish yeah. the sun would have watched them ride off together. I wish they would have did that same scene as the first movie in the ending right. with the sun watching right. them go to Yuma. That would have been That's what I thought amazing. that's what I thought it'd
0: be. I, because yeah. that that is I mean the first ending is so great. Yeah. It's so great. Yeah. And yeah. especially
1: like it's so haunting with the train steam coming up uh, yeah. and and then being enshrouded by the fog by the steam while like the posse is trying to gun them down it's like so beautifully shot yeah and i thought we were going to get that again like mangold does a great job i love the addition of the snow and the train seam coming out as it's stopping in the station and all that was beautiful and like it really seemed like he was building to this intense dramatic moment and then to just have it end in like this bloodshed like this wanton yeah like for no reason and uh robert ford shoot
2: him behind the back Type scenario, yeah, no,
1: but it, it felt like nihilistic
0: in some ways. It was did, just like it, it you know, in really against the themes of the film because when, uh, <clears throat> the story was just so well crafted until this point. Yeah, that yeah, like if if Elmore Leonard wanted Dan Evans to die at the end, he would have built in a different kind of redemption moment for him. Yeah, it just it just feels like these beats, like they just don't. It didn't clip. feel
1: earned, and it didn't feel like the story naturally culminated to that place. No. It felt like they wanted to put their own stamp on it and have a different ending, but they didn't know why they were choosing that ending.
0: Right. And also, like, they knew, like, the math of it was wrong, they're like, okay, Ben Wade has to be on the train going to Yuma at the end. Right. Yeah. Like, they were like, we know we have to hit that point. But, like, yeah. him climbing onto the Getting train and putting himself on? on, not even the sun, defeats the entire purpose of being walked to the train in the yes. first place. Like yeah. That. If we, like, he knows he can escape Yuma. Whatever that—that's its own thing, you know. Yeah. Like it's—it's it's about this one act mm-hmm. yeah. of of actually seeing through the arrest and getting him to the car, yeah. right? Because it's like no one could get him to this moment. What whatever happens with this uncontrollable force after is like outside of our well, control. But
2: also the sun coming in and out, like him leaving and then coming back. Just it, and it—it it was because right. of how they wanted to wrap it up. Right. They needed him to come back so he could. See the dad die yeah. And Hold him in his arms And be like Is he really dead Yeah, like, yeah. It just it, it was very sloppy was, They they did yeah. that And I also think You know Ben Wade Killing his entire posse Really puts a dim Yeah Light on Ben Wade's character right, but, Well
0: when he kills The first guy It makes sense Like yeah. we brought it up before It's like Okay this guy's weak He's using it as Like a, a show You know To the rest of the guys like, Yeah Don't step out of line You know And you know I'm vicious Right, right.
1: Like yeah, because in killing off Christian Bale's character, it's really saying that the redemptive arc of the movie is the evolution of Ben Wade's character, but I don't buy that no. in, because he just killed his entire he just process. He yeah, killed everybody that was loyal <laughs> well, to him. Okay. What? So may, I do think that is like a thread they're
0: trying to show in this more that like maybe he regrets the life he's he living in that he, he wants does. to
1: escape the but gang. He should have just turned his back on the gang and gotten in the train and let right, them live. Right. I think that would have been more powerful if he showed, No, I'm not one of you anymore he got on the train and left him there at the station but
0: also like I don't believe he like even if he thinks what he did was wrong now I don't think he uh, this new turned man would be like the first thing I need to do is murder more people right yeah It makes no sense. Yeah.
2: Well, and I also hate how they reveal that he's on board with Dan Evans' plan because in the first one, they do it when they're in the room together, which is such a great scene. It's like this long, you know, back and forth build into, okay, I'm going to help you get me onto this train. I respect you now as a man. Whereas in... This one, they're literally like ducking down in that little room, yep. getting shot at, and he's like, "Hey, you know what? I've escaped from you before. Let's get on that fucking exactly. train." Yeah, he's like, "It doesn't <laughs> yeah. really matter." Yeah, to yeah. Me, yeah. By he's the like, way. "You it's, know what? We haven't yeah. got shot yet." I... I I'll help you get on but that then, fucking train. Yeah,
0: but then it gets to an absurd level because, like you know, uh, Dan Evans has this bad leg, so yeah. like he literally cannot walk this guy to the train. You yeah, know? and and because they've blown it up as an action piece, now they have to you know in the you have whole Talmadge, right? Like, yeah, there's there's a million guns coming at him. Yeah, like they, yeah. And the 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 old one, the re- original, just had the beautiful script and not economy of being like, okay we're going to use this one wagon, you know, as our like diversion and we're going to like gun it as far as we can. And then, Oh, the cattle came in like as a a hand of God save, you know, but like each of those moments, like you really felt like the writers backed you into the corner and then wrote their way out of it in a, in an interesting way where you're like, it still kept you engaged for are yeah. like,
1: are they going to make it the next 10 feet though? Right. You know? Yeah. Be- because there is less action and gunfire in the original, it feels so much more tense when they're creeping around every corner right. trying to get to the station. It, yeah. Like you really feel it.
0: Yeah. And in,
1: in the new one, I'm just like, well, there, there'll be some sort of new evolution in the action to keep things going and to keep people eating their popcorn. So yes. yeah. I, I just wasn't invested at all. No, I, I, I actually like, almost was tempted to skip forward to the end watching the remake because i was so bored watching mm. it yeah. after the first hour i was like we have another hour of this to go yeah it was yeah. long, yeah, long. jesse James is three hours and that flew by yeah you know because it's so interesting yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. jesse
0: james doesn't have a lot of action either it's like no. you had the robbery at the beginning no. and then the
1: rest of the film is like but melancholy. the character psychology is so complex so that interesting you, it keeps too. you gripped
0: absolutely yeah. Yeah. Well in the cinematography, right? You got deacons, oh. like which we didn't mention. No, we, we did a world class talent. There
1: there are I think some of the most iconic shots of Deacon's career are in Jesse James. I, I would agree. I'm thinking like right. him holding the lantern as the train is yeah. coming forward.
0: The ex- exactly, with all the smoke. And then also like any of the scenes where they, they use the old, they, they found like old lenses mm-hmm. uh, and they attached them to like cameras. And so mm-hmm. they, they have this deep focus in the center. Yeah. And then they have yep. a lot of uh ossification obst- around the sides. Yes. And, yes. and that just like, feel, puts you in this like, but this they don't overuse They don't overuse them. They unlike
1: don't. cough, cough, Yorgos Lanthimos in the yeah. favorite, right, where right, right. everything is a fisheye lens. And I'm like, dude, this isn't a style. This is just you being annoying. Right. <laughs> like I expect this from a student film in film but school. When you
0: see like this, this imagery that feels remembered and it's all distorted,
1: you're like, this makes sense uh, with uh, like, uh, the pi- just yeah. every part of this film. Yeah. yeah. That whole train sequence is one of the best sequences ever put the screen. Just him leaning his ear on the tracks, oh, yeah, and then the foot, yeah. Train it also has the classic up. line: "They're th- snuff those Lannards. They're gonna trip and shoot each other into females." And then the other guy goes, "I bet you I can find them husbands if they do." <laughs> <laughs> Which is a total throwaway, but I, it cracks me up every yeah. time.
2: Yeah, <sighs> yeah. They did a good job in Jesse James of portraying like how dull people were mm. during that time. Like, all the actors did a really good job of playing just that dull... Yeah. Well, it's a
0: different pace.
2: The, the Com the Combe brothers just-
1: talk about this whenever they make a Western. They say, we're always very conscious of having differentiations in education between the characters. Right. Because mm-hmm. some people just possessed a vocabulary that most other people did not. And yeah. I, you can't have everyone speaking in the same ornate kind of language because yeah. it's just not realistic yeah. to the time. Which we're you
0: definitely t- see in, yeah. in, in uh, Jesse James, you know, yeah. with, with every gang member. But yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I, during that, I mean, during that time, there was so, there was a huge difference between class systems. I mean, you were either very poor or you were doing very well. There right. was really no, but there was no middle class at all. No.
0: Um, There's no baseline of education, and it,
2: yeah, yeah, it has to do with education too. Like the people who are doing very well are obviously educated, whereas most of the country were, you know, ranchers yeah, and, and they're
0: working from the point that they were kids. Like, yeah, right. Like it's just a whole different <coughs> game. Yeah. With and that's again, time.
2: that what that's what highlights Dick Little's character is he's a little more educated than everybody else. I and feel that's like why like you're
0: just trying to slip in a dick a little girl. That's why Literally, he's pulling
2: why? everybody's I bitches little got, got too. He's pulling everybody's he girl, pulling. dog. Cause he's, he's a
1: little smarter than everybody. He he's the only member of the posse that knows poetry yeah. and uses poetry to seduce women. That's what right. You yeah. learn in the opening scene. Yeah. yeah,
2: exactly. And that, what he had said earlier is that you actually had to like sway women and did not just be like, "Hey, you want to fuck?" Back in the day, like you <laughs> actually had to be like, "Oh, your eyes are like emeralds." Yeah, you
1: know. Also, you can tell Dominic did his research. Uh, I, I I don't think this was in the book, um, but one of the euphemisms for vagina in the Old West was quim whiskers. Mm. And Dick Little says quim in the opening scene of the movie. Oh wow! Uh, just like a qu- like quim whiskers, I guess would be the the bush around the vagina. Right. But he just refers to it as the quim. And I was like, wow. I, you know, cause I had just done a lot of research on the West for my novel. And I was like, Dominic did, he did his homework. Yeah. beating yeah. around the quim. Yeah. <laughs> Mossy cave is another good one. <laughs> <Mossy Cave. Yeah. laughs> There's a lot. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. They That's had to crazy. be more
0: creative because they couldn't just say it back then. No,
1: no, you couldn't. No, you oh. had to have some class. You must be class. Well, I think, Oh, speaking of which, Uh, Mangold in his 07 remake also uses a ton of profane language that did not feel real to the time at all. And it really pissed me off. I I was like, people did not run around the West saying fuck all the time. Like you, like you see in Deadwood and and even the creator of Deadwood admits that he goes, I know it wasn't authentic to the time. I just liked the word fuck. So I put it in, but in 310 to Yuma, it crops up a few different times, totally unnecessarily. And I was like, dude, why did you have to do this? Like you couldn't think of anything more interesting to write in this moment. Right. You got yeah. a team of professional Hollywood I, writers. I was going to
0: say, that's the thing is like just when you're dealing with like a, a classic script, you can't just only add some profanities to it. Right. Yes. Like you have to, every element you add has to be like a quantified, I, you know,
1: decision in each of my pieces, be it book or script. And with the exception of one, I, my third book is filled with profane language, but it's set in the world of big rig truckers. I really try not to ever put profane language into the words, of my char- into the mouths of my characters, uh, because I think it's so overused yeah, and its, it's impact cheap. has been so dulled. Uh, and the example I always use is Minority Report, which is a PG-13 film. There's a, the most intense scene of that film is when Tom Cruise has captured who he thinks is his child's kidnapper Mm -hmm. and he has him on the bed with the pictures of all these other kidnapped children and he's interrogating him and he's just thrashing this guy around and he goes, tell me where he is. You sick fuck. (laughs) And the way the word fuck comes out of his mouth, you're like, whoa, Cause this is a PG 13 film. You you can only say fuck once Once. and Spielberg saves it for the exact right moment. And Mm. it really lands with an impact. Mm. And it made me realize you have to save those words for the moments where they'll matter the most. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, definitely.
2: It's like an economy of words. Like, yep. Yeah, you you can't overdo it. Otherwise, they become numb to it. You know what? As
1: much as I like Scorsese, Scorsese overdoes it. Oh, yeah. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street and Departed hold the record, amongst other films, for the most uses of the word fuck.
0: I would say I feel like that's the point of some of those characters (laughs) is, like, how much they're using it as a crutch, especially, like, in The Departed, where it's, like,
1: you know, like Mark Wahlberg is throwing around like, well, that's fine because that's his character. No, no. But th- every other character for sure. For it, sure. They, it would have been smarter if they tone it down for everybody else and just made that his character. Sure. That would have been funnier. Yeah uh, everyone thinks that people in Boston just say fuck all the time. Yeah, it's like, exactly. you, whenever you see it, I think it's edgy. Yeah. You know, I, I've, you know. I'm from that area. I've a lot of family in Boston. It's not quite like that. It's the yeah. way that
0: like everyone on the East coast isn't abrasive. Like, yes. even though there are a lot of uh, abrasive
1: people, uh, they, there are know, lot, like, my, yeah. there,
0: there are people who a lot are, more. that have nuance. My parents talk about it all the time. When you they know? come
1: out to California They're like, man, people in California are so nice compared to new Englanders. Like right. they, they recognize it in right. themselves that people in new England yeah. are not oh, definitely. very friendly. Yeah. And there's
0: definitely a cultural difference. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's also Californians living in New York or, you know, like you could just run into a person. Yeah, who like for sure. Had a different, you know, life. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, guys, I think that was a pretty good talk. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do we have anything left on uh, 310 um, to Yuma or Western? Not 310 general, to Yuma, but I'm think. looking
1: some over some of my other Westerns. If you're a fan of Jesse James, check out McCabe and Mrs. Miller because that you need is to see that. a that's, Western. That's Robert Altman, right? In the same melancholic register yeah. as Jesse James. Mm. It's a beautiful film. Uh, I'm not a Warren Beatty fan, but he's perfect in that role. Uh, in the film has some of the best sets I've ever seen. It's, it feels so lived. I got to admit, Warren baby. When he's got it, he's got it. He, yeah, yeah. I mean, no. Ishtar is fucking hilarious. He, un, he has a undeniable presence. Yeah. I've, I've just never been that much of a fan of his acting. For sure. Um, he's a
0: bit of a tryhard. I think, uh, the persona could take a lot away from the performances,
1: is. you know? Oh, uh, speaking of Charles Bronson, um, a really undersung fi- uh, film of his is called Chateau's land. Um, It is a Michael Winter film. Michael Winter directed the first Death Wish. He was one of these really violent 70s guys. But uh, Charles Bronson plays a half, uh, I believe a half Apache, uh, who's defending his land uh, after these men kidnap and rape and kill his wife. And he starts. it becomes a slasher film, basically, where he starts picking them off one by one. And it's also a direct allegory to what was happening in Vietnam at the time. Uh, It's a really interesting film. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kino Lorber just put it out on Blu-ray. So if you're interested in a really cool offbeat Western, I'd check that out too.
0: Hell yeah. Well, Daniel, thank you for joining me. Once again, Daniel
1: King and I for Killing. Yes, I for Killing. Uh, By the time this podcast is released, it'll be out on all the major platforms, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Google Books, and Apple Books. And you can follow me on Instagram at DKingBooksLA.
0: Hell yeah. Do now it. We've got Quinn Shields from the Fool's Journey podcast. You can that's find right. them everywhere that podcasts are available, right? That's right. Don't
2: listen to it. Don't go listen to the Fool's Journey podcast ever.
0: Yeah. It's not one of those listening podcasts. If I catch
2: you listening to it, I swear to God, I'm going to freak out. <laughs> for
1: real. You do video recording for that podcast as oh, well? Oh, fuck no. They don't want to see me. A, it's an oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's an audio only Oh, okay.
2: Yeah. It's an audio only joint right there. That little. Mm. But yeah, go check it out. Or don't. I don't give a fuck what you do, man. You know?
0: Hell yeah. Well, uh, we are CinemaSpan. You can find us on Instagram, Letterboxd, uh, Twitter, all of that. I've been Lewis Hill the Fourth. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Get the gun. Quinn, get the gun. I'll get the gun right now. Shit,
2: I'll fucking. Oh, dude, it's still aimed at his head.